Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Protests erupted across India today over the alleged gang rape and murder of a woman from the country's most marginalized caste, the Dalit community. Four men from a dominant caste are under arrest. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports, and we should warn our listeners, this story contains descriptions of violence. Down with caste discrimination, down with rape, protesters chant in the Indian capital. The victim in this rape case was from the Dalit community, the most oppressed group in India's caste system. She was attacked in a field allegedly by dominant caste men from her same village near New Delhi. The local police chief says the victim named her attackers, four of them, before she died in a hospital last night. The men are under arrest. Most rape in India is believed to be within families and to go unreported. But every few months, there's a gang rape seemingly more horrific than the last one. Police caution against hysteria, but lurid details dominate headlines. And in tragic news coming in, a 19-year-old Dalit girl gang-raped, tortured. And the streets again are filling with protesters. Each time something happens, people demand, hang the rapist, you know, have a stronger law, etc. They forget that the system is not working. Author and activist Kalpana Sharma says the system especially fails oppressed caste women. What's most alarming about this case, she says, is that rape appears to have been used as a weapon against a whole community. But they will rape the women to tell this family or this community where it stands. The girl is picked on by these upper castes to teach the lower caste a lesson. And she is mutilated to the point where she there's no chance of her survival and she dies. Police are still investigating. Meanwhile, TV crews have flooded the family's home. Where grieving relatives threw themselves on the hood of an ambulance. The victim's body was cremated last night without the family's permission, her brother told local TV. We just want our honor restored, he says. We need protection and we need justice. Lauren Freyer, NPR News. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, October 1, 2020. So I have been told this is our fourth installment, our book club on Cased, The Origins of Our Discontents, uh, written by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, The audio segment that we just heard, that was from two days ago, uh, just this week, uh, the report about the uh, horrendous 
rape uh, of a so-called uh, lower-cased female in India. Uh, this is right in line with what we are talking about in the text. Uh, importantly, that tactic uh, of raping the sexual abuse, sexual uh, terrorism against non-white people utilized worldwide. Uh, we just talked about that last week, rampant on the plantation. In fact, the segment from this very text that we are reading, Wilkerson wrote that white enslavers would impregnate their black property so that they could sell the offspring. And I pointed out that is not the correct term. The correct term for that is rape. What we just heard from the report from India, but that is widespread. In fact, we even talked about this previously uh, in South Africa, the black people who were working against racism. Yes. Black people <laughs> on the continent who were working against racism. Sometimes the Afrikaners would use sexual violence as a means of torture uh, to extract confessions, to get information uh, from these victims of uh, white supremacy. So that is a <clears throat> long utilized component uh, of white domination, terrorism, sexual exploitation. Anywho, uh, again, Isabel Wilkerson's case, the origins of our discontents. Uh, this is our fourth installment. First audio segment for today. We will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy. Pillar number three, endogamy and the control of marriage and mating. The framers of the American caste system took steps early in its founding to keep the caste separate and to seal off the bloodlines of those assigned to the upper rung. This desire led to the third pillar of caste, endogamy, which means restricting marriage to people within the same caste. This is an ironclad foundation of any caste system, from ancient India to the early American colonies to the Nazi regime in Germany. Endogamy was brutally enforced in the United States for the vast majority of its history and did the spade work for current ethnic divisions. Endogamy enforces caste boundaries by forbidding marriage outside of one's group and going so far as to prohibit sexual relations or even the appearance of romantic interest across caste lines. It builds a firewall between castes and becomes the primary means of keeping resources and affinity within each tier of the caste system. Endogamy, by closing off legal family connection, blocks the chance for empathy or a sense of shared destiny between the castes. It makes it less likely that someone in the dominant caste will have a personal stake in the happiness, fulfillment, or well-being of anyone deemed beneath them or personally identify with them or their plight. Endogamy, in fact, makes it more likely that those in the dominant caste will see those deemed beneath them as not only less than human, but as an enemy, as not of their kind, and as a threat that must be held in check at all costs. Caste, wrote Bimrao Ambedkar, the father of the anti-caste movement in India, means an artificial chopping off of the population into fixed and definite units, each one prevented from fusing into another through the custom of endogamy. Thus, in showing how endogamy is maintained, he added, 
we shall practically have proved the genesis and also the mechanism of caste. Before there was a United States of America, there was endogamy, said to be ordained by God. One of the earliest references to what would come to be known as race in America arose over the matter of sexual relations between a European and an African. In 1630, the Virginia General Assembly sentenced Hugh Davis to a public whipping for having abused himself to the dishonor of God and the shame of Christians by defiling his body in lying with a Negro. The assembly went to the trouble of specifying that Africans, who might not normally be permitted to observe the punishment of a dominant caste man, had to attend and witness the whipping of Davis. This served a dual function in the emerging caste system. It further humiliated Davis before an audience of people deemed beneath him, and it signaled a warning to those being banished to the lowest caste in a country that did not yet even exist. If this was the fate of a white man who did not adhere to caste boundaries, so much worse will it be for you. By the time of Davis's sentencing, European men had been having sex with African women, often without consent or consequence to themselves, throughout the era of the slave trade, and had grown accustomed to acting upon their presumed sovereignty over Africans. So for the colonial fathers to condemn Hugh Davis to public humiliation for behavior that many took as a birthright meant that he had crossed a line they found threatening to the hierarchy. Something about the way he related to his mate that got their attention and required their intervention. The emerging caste system permitted the exploitation of the lowest caste, but not equality or the appearance of equality, which is why endogamy, which confers an alliance between equals in the eyes of the law, was strictly policed and rape of lower caste women ignored. The case of Hugh Davis was not only the first mention of race and hierarchy in America, but also the first attempt at setting the boundaries of publicly known relationships across caste lines. Ten years later, another white man, Robert Sweet, was forced to do penance when it came to light that he had gotten an enslaved black woman owned by another white man pregnant. By then, the focus of caste enforcement had shifted. In that case, it was the pregnant woman who was whipped, a sign of her degraded caste status, despite a medical condition that would have protected her in most civilized nations. In 1691, Virginia became the first colony to outlaw marriage between blacks and whites, a ban that the majority of states would take up for the next three centuries. Some states forbade the marriage of whites to Asians or Native Americans, in addition to African Americans, who were uniformly excluded. While there was never a single nationwide ban on intermarriage, despite several attempts to enact one, 41 of the 50 states passed laws making intermarriage a crime punishable by fines of up to $5,000 and up to 10 years in prison. Some states went so far as to forbid the passage of any future law permitting intermarriage. Outside of the law, particularly in the South, African Americans faced penalty of death 
for even the appearance of breaching this pillar of caste. The Supreme Court did not overturn these prohibitions until 1967. Still, some states were slow to officially repeal their endogamy laws. Alabama, the last state to do so, did not throw out its law against intermarriage until the year 2000. Even then, 40% of the electorate in that referendum voted in favor of keeping the marriage ban on the books. It was the caste system, through the practice of endogamy, essentially state regulation of people's romantic choices over the course of centuries, that created and reinforced races by permitting only those with similar physical traits to legally mate. Combined with bans on immigrants who were not from Europe for much of American history, endogamy laws had the effect of controlled breeding, of curating the population of the United States. This form of social engineering served to maintain the superficial differences upon which the hierarchy was based, race ultimately becoming the result of who was officially allowed to procreate with whom. Endogamy ensures the very difference that a caste system relies on to justify inequality. What we look like, wrote the legal scholar Ian Haney Lopez, the literal and racial features we in this country exhibit is to a large extent the product of legal rules and decisions. This pillar of caste was well enough understood and accepted that as late as 1958, a Gallup poll found that 94% of white Americans disapproved of marriage across racial lines. You know the Negro race is inferior mentally, a Southern physician told researchers back in 1940, expressing a commonly held view. Everyone knows that and I don't think God meant for a superior race like the whites to blend with an inferior race. As this was the prevailing sentiment for most of the country's history, an unknowable number of lives were lost due to this defining pillar of caste, the presumed breach of which triggered the most publicized cases of lynchings in America. The protocol was strictly enforced against lower-caste men and upper-caste women, while upper-caste men, the people who wrote the laws, kept full and flagrant access to lower-caste women, whatever their age or marital status. In this way, the dominant gender of the dominant caste, in addition to controlling the livelihood and life chances of everyone beneath them, eliminated the competition for its own women, and, in fact, for all women. For much of American history, dominant caste men controlled who had access to whom for romantic liaisons and reproduction. This inverted the natural expression of manhood, total freedom for one group and life-or-death policing of another, and served further to reinforce caste boundaries and the powerlessness of subordinated men who might dare try to protect their own daughters, wives, sisters, and mothers. At the same time, it reminded everyone in the hierarchy of the absolute power of dominant caste men. This was a cloud that hung over the lives 
of everyone consigned to the lowest caste for most of the time that there has been a United States of America. In the mid-1830s in Grand Gulf, Mississippi, white men burned a black man alive and stuck his head on a pole at the edge of town for all to see as a lesson to men in the subordinate caste. The black man had been tortured and beheaded after he stood up and killed the dominant caste man who owned his wife and was in the habit of sleeping with her, according to a contemporaneous account. As he faced death for taking an extreme and assuredly suicidal step to protect his wife in that world, the doomed husband said that he believed he should be rewarded in heaven for it. More than a century later, in December 1943, an earnest 15-year-old boy named Willie James Howard was working during the holiday school break at a dime store in Live Oak, Florida. He was an only child, and having made it to the 10th grade, was expected to exceed what anyone else in the family had been able to accomplish. That December, he made a fateful gesture, unknowing or unmindful of a central pillar of caste. He was hopeful and excited about his new job and wanted so badly to do well that he sent Christmas cards to everyone at work. In one Christmas card, the one to a girl his age named Cynthia, who worked there and whom he had a crush on, he signed with L for love. It would seem an ordinary gesture for that time of the year, sweet even, but this was the Jim Crow South. The boy was black and the girl was white. She showed the card to her father. Word got back to Willie James that his card had somehow disturbed her. So on New Year's Day, 1944, he hand-delivered an apologetic note trying to explain himself. I know you don't think much of our kind of people, but we don't hate you. All we want is to be your friends, but you won't let us. Please don't let anybody else see this. I hope I haven't made you mad. He added a rhyme. I love your name, I love your voice. For a S-H, sweetheart, you are my choice. The next day, the girl's father and two other white men dragged Willie James and his father to the banks of the Suwannee River. They hog-tied Willie James and held a gun to his head. They forced him to jump and forced his father at gunpoint to watch him drown. Held captive and outnumbered as the father was, he was helpless to save his only child. The men admitted to authorities that they had abducted the boy and bound his hands and feet. They said he just jumped and drowned on his own. Within days, the boy's parents fled for their lives. A young Thurgood Marshal of the NAACP alerted the Florida governor to no avail. The NAACP Field Secretary, Harry T. Moore, managed to convince the boy's parents to overcome their terror and to sign affidavits about what had happened the day their son was killed. A local grand jury refused to indict the boy's abductors, and federal prosecutors would not intervene. No one was ever held to account or spent a day in jail for the death of Willie James. His abduction and death were seen as upholding the caste order. Thus the terrors of the southern caste system continued 
carried forth without penalty. Sanctioned as it was by the U.S. government, the caste system had become not simply Southern, but American. Pillar number four, purity versus pollution. The fourth pillar of caste rests upon the fundamental belief in the purity of the dominant caste and the fear of pollution from the castes deemed beneath it. Over the centuries, the dominant caste has taken extreme measures to protect its sanctity from the perceived taint of the lower castes. Both India and the United States at the zenith of their respective caste systems and the short-lived but heinous regime of the Nazis raised the obsession with purity to a high, if absurdist, art. In some parts of India, the lowest caste people were to remain a certain number of paces from any dominant caste person while walking out in public, somewhere between 12 and 96 steps away, depending on the castes in question. They had to wear bells to alert those deemed above them so as not to pollute them with their presence. A person in the lowest sub-castes in the Maratha region had to drag a thorny branch with him to wipe out his footprints and prostrate himself on the ground if a Brahmin passed so that his foul shadow might not defile the holy Brahmin. Touching or drawing near to anything that had been touched by an untouchable was considered polluting to the upper castes and required rituals of purification for the high caste person following this misfortune. This they might do by bathing at once in flowing water or performing pranayama breaths along with meditation to cleanse themselves of the pollutants. In Germany, the Nazis banned Jewish residents from stepping onto the beaches at the Jews' own summer homes as at Wannsee, a resort suburb of Berlin, and at public pools in the Reich. They believed the entire pool would be polluted by immersion in it of a Jewish body, Jean-Paul Sartre once observed. In the United States, the subordinate caste was quarantined in every sphere of life, made untouchable on American terms for most of the country's history and well into the 20th century. In the South, where most people in the subordinate caste were long consigned, black children and white children studied from separate sets of textbooks. In Florida, the books for black children and white children could not even be stored together. African Americans were prohibited from using white water fountains and had to drink from horse troughs in the southern swelter before the era of separate fountains. In southern jails, the bedsheets for the black prisoners were kept separate from the bedsheets for the white prisoners. All private and public human activities were segregated from birth to death, from hospital wards to railroad platforms to ambulances, hearses, and cemeteries. In stores, Black people were prohibited from trying on clothing, shoes, hats, or gloves, assuming they were permitted in the store at all. If a black person happened to die in a public hospital, the body will be placed in a corner of the dead house, away from the white corpses, wrote the historian 
Bertram Doyle in 1937. This pillar of caste was enshrined into law in the United States in 1896, after a New Orleans man challenged an 1890 Louisiana law that separated the white and colored races in railroad cars. Louisiana had passed the law after the collapse of Reconstruction and the return to power of the former Confederates. A committee of concerned citizens of color came together and raised money to fight the law in court. On the appointed day, June 7, 1892, Homer A. Plessy, a shoemaker who looked white but was categorized as black under the American definition of race, bought a first-class ticket from New Orleans to Covington on the East Louisiana Railroad and took his seat in the whites-only car. In that era, a person of ambiguous racial origin was presumed not to be white, so the conductor ordered him to the colored car. Plessy refused and was arrested, as the committee had anticipated. His case went to the Supreme Court, which ruled seven to one in favor of Louisiana's separate but equal law. It set in motion nearly seven decades of formal, state-sanctioned isolation and exclusion of one caste from the other in the United States. In Southern courtrooms, even the Word of God was segregated. There were two separate Bibles, one for blacks and one for whites, to swear to tell the truth on. The same sacred object could not be touched by hands of different races. This pillar of purity, as with the others, endangered the lives of the people in the subordinate caste. One day in the 1930s, a black railroad switchman was working in Memphis and slipped and fell beneath a switch engine. He lay bleeding to death, his right arm and leg severed. Ambulances rushed to the man's aid, according to reports of the incident. They took one look, saw that he was a Negro, and backed away. The Sanctity of Water The waters and shorelines of nature were forbidden to the subordinate castes if the dominant caste so desired. Well into the 20th century, African Americans were banned from white beaches and lakes and pools, both north and south, lest they pollute them, just as Dalits were forbidden from the waters of the Brahmins and Jews from Aryan waters in the Third Reich. This was a sacred principle in the United States well into the second half of the 20th century, and the dominant caste went to great lengths to enforce it. In the early 1950s, when Cincinnati agreed under pressure to allow black swimmers into some of its public pools, whites threw nails and broken glass into the water to keep them out. In the 1960s, a black civil rights activist tried to integrate a public pool by swimming a lap and then emerging to towel off. The response was to drain the pool entirely, wrote the legal historian Mark S. Weiner, and refill it with fresh water. Decades before, in 1919, a black boy paid with his life and set off a riot in Chicago for inadvertently breaching this pillar of caste. 17-year-old Eugene Williams was swimming in Lake Michigan at a public beach on the city's south side 
and happened to wade past the imaginary line that separated the races. He unknowingly passed into the white water, which flowed into and looked no different from the black water. He was stoned and drowned to death for doing so. The tensions over the breaching of boundaries that summer incited the dominant caste and set off one of the worst race riots in U.S. history. In the decades after, in Middle American places like Newton, Kansas, and Marion, Indiana, in Pittsburgh and St. Louis, people in the upper caste rose up in hysterics at the sight of a subordinate caste person approaching their water. In August 1931, a new public park opened in Pittsburgh, with pools the size of a football field and big enough for 10,000 swimmers. But soon afterward, as the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reported, each Negro who entered the pool yesterday was immediately surrounded by whites and slugged or held beneath the water until he gave up his attempts to swim and left. In the summer of 1949, the city of St. Louis had what was considered the largest city pool in the country at its fairground park. When the city, under pressure from black citizens, took up the issue of allowing black people into the pool, the backlash was immediate. A man who happened to have the same name as the official in charge of integrating the pool required police protection due to the mistaken threats against him. Lifeguards considered quitting in protest. The day the first African Americans arrived to swim, a crowd gathered with knives, bricks, and bats. They set upon the black children who had come to swim, forcing them to walk a gauntlet, striking and taunting them. The mob grew to 5,000 people who chased after any black person they saw approaching the park, children on bicycles, a man stepping off a streetcar, a truck stalled in traffic, a black man on a porch at a house next to the park. They kicked him as he lay on the ground, limp and bleeding. The town of Newton, Kansas, went to the state Supreme Court to keep black people out of the pool it built in 1935. The city and its contractor argued that black people could never be permitted in the pool, not on alternate days, not at separate hours, not ever. Because of the type of pool it was, they told the court that it was a circulatory type of pool in which the water is only changed once during the swimming season. White people, they argued, would not go into the water that had touched black skin. The only way white residents would swim in a pool after blacks, wrote the historian Jeff Wiltz, was if the water was drained and the tank scrubbed. The operators couldn't do all that every time a black person went into the pool, so they banned black people altogether. The court sided with the city, and for decades more, the town's only public pool remained for the exclusive use of the dominant caste. A public pool outside Pittsburgh solved this problem by keeping black people out until after the season was over in September which meant it was closed to black swimmers at the precise time that they or anyone else would have wanted to use it. The manager said this was the only way the maintenance crew could get 
sufficient time to properly cleanse and disinfect it after the Negroes have used it. A white woman in Marion, Indiana, seemed to be speaking for many in the dominant caste across America when she said that white people wouldn't swim with colored people because they didn't want to be polluted by their blackness. Far from her, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, whites blocked African Americans at the stairwells and entrances the week the city first allowed black swimmers to its public pool. There and elsewhere, every black swimmer that entered the water quite literally risked his or her life, Wilts wrote. It was in this atmosphere in 1951 that a Little League baseball team in Youngstown, Ohio, won the city championship. The coaches, unthinkingly, decided to celebrate with a team picnic at a municipal pool. When the team arrived at the gate, a lifeguard stopped one of the Little Leaguers from entering. It was Al Bright, the only black player on the team. His parents had not been able to attend the picnic, and the coaches and some of the other parents tried to persuade the pool officials to let the little boy in to no avail. The only thing the lifeguards were willing to do was to let them set a blanket for him outside the fence and to let people bring him food. He was given little choice and had to watch his teammates splash in the water and chase each other on the pool deck while he sat alone on the outside. From time to time, one or another of the players or adults came out and sat with him before returning to join the others. His childhood friend, the author Mel Watkins, would write years later. It took an hour or so for a team official to finally convince the lifeguards that they should at least allow the child into the pool for a few minutes. The supervisor agreed to let the little leaguer in, but only if everyone else got out of the water, and only if Al followed the rules they set for him. First, everyone, meaning his teammates, the parents, all the white people, had to get out of the water. Once everyone cleared out, Al was led to the pool and placed in a small rubber raft, Watkins wrote. A lifeguard got into the water and pushed the raft with Al in it for a single turn around the pool. As a hundred or so teammates, coaches, parents, and onlookers watched from the sidelines. After the agonizing few minutes that it took to complete the circle, Al was then escorted to his assigned spot on the other side of the fence. During his short time in the raft, as it glided on the surface, the lifeguard warned him over and over again of one important thing. Just don't touch the water, the lifeguard said, as he pushed the rubber float. Whatever you do, don't touch the water. The lifeguard managed to keep the water pure that day, but a part of that little boy died that afternoon. When one of the coaches offered him a ride home, he declined. With champion trophy in hand, Watkins wrote, Al walked the mile or so back home by himself. He was never the same after that. The Hierarchy of Trace Amounts Griffs, Mahabon, and Songmele. The American caste system was an accelerated one, 
compressed into a fraction of the time that India's caste system has been in existence. Its founders used the story of Noah and his sons to justify the bottom of the hierarchy, but without further biblical instruction, as in the laws of Manu, they shaped the upper caste as they went along. This policing of purity in the United States began with the task of defining the dominant caste itself. While all the countries in the New World created hierarchies with Europeans on top, the United States alone created a system based on racial absolutism, the idea that a single drop of African blood or varying percentages of Asian or Native American blood could taint the purity of someone who might otherwise be presumed to be European, a stain that would thus disqualify the person from admittance to the dominant caste. This was a punitive model of racial superiority, as opposed to the South African model, which rewarded those with any proximity to whiteness and created an official mid-caste of colored people as a buffer between black and white. South Africa granted privileges on a graded scale based on how much European blood was thought to be coursing through one's veins, seeing white blood as a cleansing antiseptic to that of lowlier groups in the purity-pollution paradigm. Both were forms of white supremacy crafted to fit the demographics of each country. South Africa's white minority had an incentive to grow its power and numbers by granting honorary whiteness to those deemed close enough. The white majority in the United States had no such incentive and, in fact, benefited by elevating itself and holding those fewer in number apart and beneath them to serve as their subordinates. Degradation resulting from the taint of blood adheres to the descendants of Ham in this country like the poisoned tunic of Nessus, wrote Joseph Henry Lumpkin, the antebellum chief justice of the Georgia Supreme Court, managing to combine Greek mythology and two pillars of caste, divine will, and pollution into a single ruling. The mythical tunic was the blood-soaked garment of the fallen centaur Nessus, which came to represent inescapable misfortune and ruin to those who wore it. The founders labored from the start over who should be allowed into the dominant caste. The vast majority of human beings, including many who are now considered white, would not have fit their definition. Twenty-five years before the American Revolution, Benjamin Franklin worried that, with its growing German population, Pennsylvania would become a colony of aliens who will shortly be so numerous as to Germanize us, instead of our anglifying them, and will never adopt our language or customs any more than they can acquire our complexion. Ultimately, the dominant caste used immigration and marriage law to control who could join its ranks and who would be excluded. That took constant redefinition. The law could not separate what it failed to categorize, wrote the legal scholars Raymond T. Diamond and Robert J. Cottrell. A legally mandated caste system needed at a minimum to define caste membership. At first, Congress in 1790 
restricted American citizenship to white immigrants, free white persons, according to the statute. But whiteness had yet to be settled, and by the mid-19th century, with millions of people immigrating from Germany and fleeing famine in Ireland, supremacists on both sides of the Atlantic fretted over what was to become of a country flooded by the most degenerate races of olden-day Europe, in the words of Arthur de Gobineau, a widely read 19th-century advocate of Aryan supremacy. They are the human flotsam of all ages, Irish, cross-bred Germans and French, and Italians of even more doubtful stock. For most of American history, anyone not Anglo-Saxon fell somewhere on a descending scale of human pollution. Like a field marshal defending his flanks in multiple theaters, the dominant caste fought the tainted influx of new immigrants with two of the most stringent immigration bans ever enacted, just before and after the turn of the 20th century. The country tried to block the flow of Chinese immigrants into the western states with the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Then it turned to the immigrants arriving from southern and eastern Europe, the scum and offscouring, as a former Virginia governor put it, newcomers who purportedly brought crime and disease and polluted the bloodlines of America's original white stock. Congress commissioned an analysis of the crisis, an influential document known as the Dillingham Report, and the House Committee on Immigration and Naturalization called hearings as the United States tried to further curate its population. The moral fiber of the nation has been weakened, and its very lifeblood vitiated by the influx of this tide of Oriental scum, Reverend M. D. Licklider, a minister from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, said in his testimony before the committee in 1910. Our grand Anglo-Saxon character must be preserved, and the pure, unmixed blood flowing down from our Aryan progenitors must not be mixed with the Iberic race, a term applied to Southern Italians in the era of eugenics. The findings set the stage for the 1924 Immigration Act, which restricted immigration to quotas based on the demographics of 1890, that is, before Poles, Jews, Greeks, Italians, and others outside of Western Europe had arrived in great numbers. Their status contested, these groups were not always extended the protections accorded to unassailably white people. Not then, anyway. There was an attempt to exclude Italian voters from white primaries in Louisiana in 1903. The decade before, in 1891, Eleven Italian immigrants in New Orleans lost their lives in one of the largest mass lynchings in American history, after the police chief was assassinated and the immigrants were seen as the prime suspects. After the lynching, hundreds more were rounded up and arrested. One of the organizers of the lynch mob, John M. Parker, later described Italians as just a little worse than the Negro, being, if anything, filthier in their habits, lawless, and treacherous. He went on to be elected governor of Louisiana.
Later in 1922, a black man in Alabama named Jim Rollins was convicted of miscegenation for living as the husband of a white woman named Edith Lebeau. But when the court learned that the woman was Sicilian and saw no competent evidence that she was white, the judge reversed the conviction. The uncertainty surrounding whether she was conclusively white led the court to take the extraordinary step of freeing a black man who in other circumstances might have faced a lynching had she been seen as a white woman. By then, a majority of the states had devised or were in the process of devising ever more tortured definitions of white and black. Arkansas first defined Negro as one in whom there is a visible and distinct admixture of African blood. Then in 1911, the state changed it to anyone who has any Negro blood whatever, as it made interracial sex a felony. The state of Alabama defined a black person as anyone with a drop of Negro blood in its intermarriage ban. Oregon defined as non-white any person with one-quarter Negro, Chinese, or any person having one-quarter Negro, Chinese, or Kanaka blood, or more than one-half Indian blood. North Carolina forbade marriage between whites and any person of Negro or Indian descent to third-generation inclusive. The state of Georgia defined white to mean no ascertainable trace of Negro, African, West Indian, Asiatic blood. Louisiana had a law on the books as recently as 1983, setting the boundary at 132nd Negro blood. Louisiana culture went to great specificity, not so unlike the Indian laws of Manu, in delineating the various subcasts based on the estimated percentage of African blood. There was Griff, three-fourths black, Mahabon, five-eighths black, Mulatto, one-half, Quadroon, one-fourth, Octoroon, one-eighth, Sextoroon, one-sixteenth, Demi, Meameluk, one-thirty-second, and Songmele, one-sixty-fourth. The latter categories, as 21st century genetic testing has now shown, would encompass millions of Americans now classified as Caucasian. All of these categories bear witness to a historic American dominant caste preoccupation with race and caste purity. Virginia went all in and passed what it called the Racial Integrity Act of 1924, which besides prohibiting interracial marriage, defined a white person as one who has no trace whatsoever of any blood other than Caucasian. The traceable amount was meant to ensure that even blacks who did not look black were kept in their place, wrote Diamond and Cottrell. Tracing black ancestry as far back as possible became a prerequisite to the smooth functioning of the caste system. The Trials of the Middle Castes The Race to Get Under the White Tent By extending the dream of dominion over the land and all others in it to anyone who could meet the definition of white, the American caste system 
became an all-or-nothing gambit for the top rung, which is why, when Ybor City, Florida, began segregating its streetcars in 1905, Cubans, who had been uncertain as to how they would be classified, were relieved and overjoyed to discover that they were allowed to sit in the white section. Those permitted under the white tent could reap the rewards of full citizenship, rise to positions of high status or as far as their talents could take them, get access to the best the country had to offer, or, at the very least, be accorded respect in everyday interactions from subordinate groups who risked assault for any misstep. A two-tiered caste system raised the stakes for whiteness, leading to court dockets filled with people on the borderline seeking admission to the upper caste. A Japanese immigrant named Takao Azawa had lived in the United States for more than 20 years. He tried to make the case that he was worthy of citizenship and should qualify as white because his skin was lighter than that of many white people. He argued, what really was the difference? How could he not be white if his skin was white? What did it mean to be white if someone with actual white skin was not white? His case went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1922, the court held unanimously that white meant not skin color, but Caucasian, and that Japanese were not Caucasian, notwithstanding the fact that few white Americans had origins in the Caucasus Mountains of Russia either, and that those who did were at that very moment being kept out too. After the ruling a newspaper that catered to Japanese immigrants mocked the decision. Since this newspaper did not believe whites are the superior race, it is delighted the High Tribunal did not find the Japanese to be free white persons. A few months later, an immigrant from the dominant caste of India sought to make common cause with his upper caste counterparts in America when his application for citizenship made it to the Supreme Court. Bhagat Singh Tin argued that he was Caucasian, Aryan, in fact, descended from the same stock as Europeans, given that it was widely held that Aryans migrated south to India and formed that country's upper caste. It could be said that he had a more rightful claim to being Caucasian than the people judging him. After all, the Caucasus Mountains were next to Iran and closer to neighboring India than to Western Europe. The court did not agree and rejected Tin's quest for citizenship in 1923. It may be true that the blonde Scandinavian and the brown Hindu have a common ancestor in the dim reaches of antiquity, wrote the court. But the average man knows perfectly well that there are unmistakable and profound differences between them today. These decisions were a heartbreaking catastrophe for Asians seeking citizenship. With pro-Western European sentiment running high, the government began rescinding the naturalized citizenship of people of Asian descent who were already here. This amounted to an abandonment of people who had lived legally in the United States for most of their adult lives as would echo a century later with immigrants crossing the southern U.S. border 
with Mexico. It could lead to tragic consequences. Vaishno Das Bagai, an Indian immigrant, had been in the United States for eight years by the time the Supreme Court ruled that Indians were not white and thus were ineligible for citizenship. He had a wife and three children and his own general store on Fillmore Street in San Francisco. He tended his store in three-piece suits and kept his hair cut short with a part on the side. Bagai lost his citizenship in the crackdown on non-white immigrants. He was then stripped of the business he had built due to a California law restricting the economic rights of people who were not citizens. Shorn of a passport, he was then thwarted in his attempt to get back to India and was now a man without a country. Far from his original home and rejected by his new one, he rented a room in San Jose, turned on the gas, and took his life. He left a suicide note in which he lamented the futility of all that he had sacrificed to come to America. Obstacles this way, blockades that way, and bridges burnt behind. No matter which route a borderline applicant took to gain acceptance, the caste system shapeshifted to keep the upper caste pure by its own terms. What a thin, frayed thread held the illusions together. A Japanese novelist once noted that, on paper anyway, it was a single apostrophe that stood between rejection and citizenship for a Japanese O'Hara versus an Irish O'Hara. These cases laid bare not just the absurdity, but the inaccuracy of these artificial labels and the perception of purity or pollution implied by them. At the same time, they exposed the unyielding rigidity of a caste system, defiant in the face of evidence contrary to its foundation, how it holds fast against the assault of logic. Defining Purity and the Constancy of the Bottom Rung As the middle castes pressed for admittance to the rungs above them, what was consistent was the absolute exclusion of the polluting lowest caste. African Americans were not just not citizens. They were, like their Dalit counterparts in India, forced outside the social contract. They and the Dalits bore the daily brunt of the taint ascribed to their very beings. The Dalits were not permitted to drink from the same cups as the dominant castes in India live in the same villages of the upper-caste people, walk through the front doors of upper-caste homes, and neither were African Americans in much of the United States for most of its history. African Americans in the South were required to walk through the side or back door of any white establishment they approached. Throughout the United States, sundown laws forbade them from being seen in white towns and neighborhoods after sunset or risk assault or lynching. In bars and restaurants in the North, though they might be permitted to sit and eat, it was common for the bartender to make a show of smashing the glass that a black patron had just sipped from. Heads would turn as restaurant patrons looked to see where the crashing sound had come from and who had offended the sensibilities of caste pollution. Untouchables, were not allowed inside Hindu temples, 
and black Mormons in America by way of example were not allowed inside the temples of the religion they followed and could not become priests until 1978. Enslaved black people were prohibited from learning to read the Bible or any book, for that matter, just as untouchables were prohibited from learning Sanskrit and sacred texts. In churches in the South, black worshippers sat in the galleries or in the back rows, and when such arrangements were inconvenient to the dominant caste, the Negroes must catch the gospel as it escapes through the windows and doors from outside. To this day, Sunday morning has been called the most segregated hour in America. Well into the civil rights era, the caste system excluded African Americans from the daily activities of the general public in the South, the region where most of them lived. They knew to disregard any notice of a circus coming to town or of a political rally. Those things were not intended for them. They were driven from Independence Day parades, wrote the historian David Rodiger, as defilers of the body politic. What a British magistrate observed about the lowest castes in India could as well have been said of African Americans. They were not allowed to be present at the great national sacrifices or at the feasts which followed them, wrote the colonial administrator and historian W. W. Hunter. They could never rise out of their servile condition, and to them was assigned the severest toil in the fields. Their exclusion was used to justify their exclusion. Their degraded station justified their degradation. They were consigned to the lowliest, dirtiest jobs, and thus were seen as lowly and dirty, and everyone in the caste system absorbed the message of their degradation. The burden fell on those in the lowest caste to adjust themselves for the convenience of the dominant caste whenever in contact with white people. An African-American man who managed to become an architect during the 19th century had to train himself to read architectural blueprints upside down, wrote the scholar Charles W. Mills, because he knew white clients would be made uncomfortable by having him on the same side of the desk as themselves. Well into the 20th century, a panic could afflict people in the dominant caste if ever a breach occurred. A frantic white mother in civil rights-era Mississippi yanked her young daughter inside one day, held her over the kitchen sink, and scrubbed her little hand with a Brillo pad, as if both their lives depended on it. The girl had touched the hand of a little black girl who was working on the family's land. The mother told her never to touch that girl's hand again, though that was not the term she used. They have germs, the mother said. They're nasty. The mother's fury frightened the little girl and brought her to tears as they stood there, bent over the sink. And the daughter's tears brought the mother to tears over the manufactured terror she had allowed to consume her and over the box that she realized in that moment had imprisoned her for all of her life. This was a sacred prohibition, and it was said that into the 1970s, the majority of whites in the South had not so much as shaken the hands of a black person. 
a young, dominant caste man raised in the Depression-era South, had been well taught the rules of the caste system and adhered to them as expected. When he went north in the mid-twentieth century and joined the military, he had to confront the mythologies of his upbringing. Strange things pop up at us like gargoyles when we are liberated from our delusions, the white southerner said. Up north on occasion, he found himself in situations where black people were permitted in the same work settings as whites. I thought I was entirely prepared, emotionally and intellectually. The man, an editor at Look magazine, recalled years later. But he discovered that he was a captive of his own conditioning, which he called a certain madness. Every time he reached the point where he had to shake hands with a black person, he felt an automatic revulsion that had been trained into him. He recoiled, even though it had been black women who had bathed him as a child had mixed the dough for his biscuits, and whose touch had not repulsed him when extended in servitude. But with presumed equals. Each time I shook hands with a Negro, he said, I felt an urge to wash my hands. Every rational impulse, all that I considered best in myself, struggled against this urge. But the hand that had touched the dark skin had a will of its own, and would not be dissuaded from signaling it was unclean. That is what I mean by madness. Context of white supremacy. This book is full of madness, uh, if we want to use that word. My God. Uh, we will stop there. We will pick up uh, for the next audio segment, pillar number five, occupational hierarchy, the Jatisse, and the Mudsel. That's what we'll pick up at uh, Chapter 5, Pillar Number 5, excuse me, Pillar Number 5. Uh, the number 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again. Seven one six seven. Excuse me. Seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Email is untiljustice at gmail dot com. Until justice at gmail.com. We had a number of folks who emailed uh, their commentary, so I'll make sure to get those, or I'll sprinkle them in as we go. I'll start right now. Uh, I didn't even get all the commentary from last week, so catching up. Uh, it's one from last week. Good evening, Gus. And to the listeners, I have a few thoughts on the audio segment. The first would be when Ms. Wilkerson gives her antidotes of how Germany, India, and the U.S. compares to each other. Her examples of India in comparison to Germany and the U.S. seem like two totally different realms of power and, in my opinion, are not equivalent when talking about a power structure worldwide. The singing of We Shall Overcome Worldwide was noteworthy. The author speaks about how the Nazis were enamored with how the United States practiced racism. 
It's astonishing that there's plenty of scholarship on Hitler and the Nazis, but I don't think it gets emphasized enough on how influential the United States was on the Nazis structuring their system over in Germany. We have a Lothrop, Stoddard, and Madison Grant reference again while studying white supremacy. When Hitler wrote to the Grant and said in 1916, in his 1916 text, was his Bible, I thought the religion of white supremacy. When the Nazis began to structure their system, one of the first things they did was create definitions for Jews and Aryans. Definitions are important and should be established at the beginning of any serious discussion or task involving race. That just reiterated that point for me. My studies on Nazi Germany aren't as extensive as, extensive as my studies are on the United States, but it'd be interesting to know whether the Nazis took race mixing more serious that the United States took it. We know it was very common for white people to rape non-white people frequently in the U.S. The Nazis wondered why the Jews in the states weren't grouped with the colors, and I'd like to know that also. The Nazis were trying to match the United States' mistreatment of what they perceived as non-white. It was said Germany became a full-fledged racist regime while using the religious term Jew as an identifier for them. I think it would have been helpful to go a little bit into why the so-called Jews weren't classified as Aryan or white. I think someone made that point last week. I agree with Whitman saying scholars who draw parallels between the Jews' treatment in Nazi Germany and black people's treatment in the U.S. were wrong because they understate the severity of the treatment of black people in the U.S. Someone said that last week, too. The Nazis thought that the one-drop rule was too severe, but the United States wasn't as severe as they professed because people who were able to be accepted as white were just accepted. I'm not aware of any extensive background check on every white person to make sure they didn't have a drop of Negro blood. Chapter 9. When the author described the inconvenient location of the lynching tree and how it had the potential to injure or kill many whites in automobile accidents, they insisted on it remaining there. To me, that showed dedication to a symbol of white supremacy, even if it's to the physical detriment of many whites in the area. The description the author gives about the lynching of a black male for scaring a white woman is very detailed, as well as her descriptions of Nazi Germany tactics, but to me it's incongruent to compare the Indian case system to white supremacy in the United States or Germany. I think her antidotes so far have shown that they aren't congruent. The arguing and debating over who would get Wiley McNeely's body parts made me think of Delectable Negro. Top 10. Lynching postcards were so big that the Postmaster General had to ban them from being sent through the regular mail stream. Whites were so dedicated to that form of practicing racism that they circumvented the ban by putting them in envelopes. A city mayor tried to quell a racist mob, and they rep responded by putting a rope around his neck and injuring him to the point of being hospitalized. Part three, when the author spoke about the NBA, NBA player named Tabo Babo Cephalosha, a non-white victim of racism from Switzerland, he deserved a mention by name. I said that last week loudly, him not being named. Say her name. and no one, Anyway, there was a mention of rape in a mentally ill black female, and she was punished for being raped. Whites are ruthless when it comes to their sexual deviance against non-white people. While James Howard's father was forced to watch his son's murder because the son sent a Christmas card and an apology note to a white woman, there's countless numbers of examples of whites behaving savagely over the smallest infractions. This is certainly another. Before blacks got a separate water, before blacks got separate water fountains, they had to drink out of the same water apparatus as horses. Whites did anything imaginable to demean and mistreat black people. That concludes my commentary. Thank you for sharing. All right, so we have other emails. Woo. 
see if I can get through all of those this week, and then we will uh, hopefully be back all lined up, no emails waiting. I'll have everybody uh, said who wrote in. Much obliged to everyone who emails untiljustice at gmail.com. All right, folks who dialed in via the phone line, star 61, if you have commentary to share on the first portion of the reading, uh, star 61, first few folks who dialed in with a hand up, uh, line should be open. Can I be heard? Greetings, Henry in Chicago. All right, greetings, Gus, and greetings to all the callers and listeners. Um, endogamy, breeding. Uh, I, I know she gave a definition of endogamy, but, you know, sounds like, uh, and then also breeding, uh, you know, kind of sound like, you know, dog breeding or something like that. Uh, and I thought about dog breeders because they only breed, you know, purebreds, you know. They only breed the pit bulls with the pit bulls and the rottweilers with the rottweilers. So um, I thought about that and, and, and the racist connotations of dog breeders. But, you know, <laughs> that, that's, that's, I don't want to go too much off topic with that. Uh, Eugene Williams, uh, swimming in Lake Michigan, uh, mentioned in Packing Them In. Uh, we read that about a couple of months ago. Um, South Africa's white minority had an incentive to grow its power and numbers by granting honorary whiteness to those deemed close enough. Um, I know here in the United States it's already happening where uh, Hispanics have a choice of choosing uh, white Hispanic, uh, so uh, I, I, I kind of see further down that, you know, they're, you know, Mexicans are going to have a choice to choosing white if they want to, or if they look like they're white. Um, I remember you had somebody on the show from Brazil who used to live in the United States, now white black male, and he said that, I guess in Brazil, you can legally classify as white if you have a white parent, and... I kind of feel that'll probably be here as well uh, because of the fact that, you know, white people are uh, numerically are shrinking in numbers. Um, Oregon defined as non-white any person with one-fourth Negro Chinese or any person having one-fourth Negro Chinese or Kanaka blood. Uh, the state of Georgia defined white to mean no ascertainable trace of Negro, African, West Indian, and Asiatic blood. Now, that was interesting because, you know, earlier in the, in the text, in this, uh, in this reading, you know, she was talking about how the Irish and the Italians were considered non-white. But if you look at the books at some of these laws on who's considered non-white, they don't mention Italians or Irish in it. They say Negro, Chinese, Kanaka, West Indian, African, but I don't see Italian or Irish in, in what she had uh, just uh, mentioned in citing these laws. Um, People who are not white are, eligible, uh, are ineligible for citizenship. African Americans were not considered citizens. Um, I definitely agree with that today. I don't think uh, non-white p- 
people, especially non-white black people, are American citizens. Uh, we don't have the rights. Uh, we're not protected under the laws of this country. So uh, me and any other non-white person, from my standpoint, are not considered uh, citizens of this country. Um, that's all I have of me in my life. obliged Henry in Chicago uh, packing them in second time that book got mentioned this week lots of great information uh, in that tab said that the whole time that we've been reading this book like oh we just talked about it oh we just talked packing them in dr. Sylvia Hood Washington uh, other folks who we've not heard from yet if you have commentary proceed good evening can I be heard yes ma'am all right. Good evening, everyone. Um, I, I'm not sure if she has given a definition for Aryan yet. I, I haven't heard it. Maybe she has. Um, I think she mentioned Aryan supremacy. I'm not sure what that is. Um, she also mentioned um, supremacists on both sides of the Atlantic. I did not know what she was talking about there either. Um, she said something about, she said she kept saying um, dominant caste and dominant gender, and I was wondering why she, <laughs> why she just doesn't say white men. Um, when she's talking about uh, white men raping black women, why she doesn't use the word rape, uh, she used uh, sexual escapism, she used all these uh, euph euphemisms to uh, not say the word rape. And I was thinking um, very similar to what the uh, fellow just said, uh, Henry from Chicago. But I, I was thinking more lines like, um, you know, like black people are not even considered as people, um, much less citizens, not even considered to be human beings. I think sometimes they viewed even less as um, less than animals. Um, I should say we. Um, and then she was talking about, you know, the different, I guess discrimination that goes on within the group of people who are classified as white. And it made me think about a caste system within, uh, within that group of white people. Like maybe she should talk about that. Um, I think someone mentioned that. I think, um, what's his name from uh, New York? Thomas from New York mentioned that. But I think she should, she should just talk about that. Um, what else? Let's see. Yes, she said um, the apex of the caste system. And I want to know, is she saying that the apex of the caste system, like, what does she mean by that? I wasn't sure what she meant by that. Um, yeah, and then she mentioned South Africa and America um, because of that one-drop rule. She said it was like a, a form of white supremacy. So I was curious if she's saying that caste, is caste is the caste system a form of white supremacy? Yeah, those are yeah those are thoughts that I had when I listened to um that audio clip. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Much obliged for the commentary. I think several folks have said maybe all the way back to the first audio segment um, that it would have been interesting if she had included some of the 
how whites set up caste systems or hierarchies within uh, the white race, that they have kind of looked at some of the feudal systems that they set up in Europe and that type of thing. I think several folks have, uh, you know, said that throughout. Uh, other folks, uh, much obliged, ma'am. Other folks who dialed in, if you have commentary and we've missed you thus far, proceed. Can I be heard? Uh, yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all the callers. Um, interesting reading this week. Cast um, the is the reason Alabama, I guess. Cast is the reason Alabama. Alabama didn't lawfully allow tragic arrangements until the year two thousand. And uh, even in the year 2000, she said 40% of Alabamians, who I will surmise is far from the high caste of white people in Alabama, voted um, to not allow tragic arrangements still. So, you know, like I would say high-class white people, Alabama, you know, I live in New York. These are high-class white people. I mean, you know, I can take it to the high, high-class white people. Um, the upper caste of white society, Alabama, they would not consider them that, you know. Um, I don't see how this um, even makes sense with her saying that. You know, caste has nothing to do with that. That's straight racism, you know. That's, these are poor white people. Um, what were the punishments in India for not following their caste system? She leaves that out. Um, if one didn't carry a branch behind them, so they left no footprints in the sand as they walked, what happened to them? Did they get lynched? Did they get their Achilles, you know, cut? You know, what was the punishment for not following the rules? Um, she leaves that out, um, and I think that's for a reason. Um, when she described an act of racism and called it cash, she added the act of violence when it happened to black people every instance. Um, someone sent the Christmas card, they was drowned. Um, just was having the red letter L written in the card. Uh, mobs of bricks and knife and bats holding white people attacking black people because they were swimming in a pool. Uh, but there's no acts of violence that follows this um, Indian caste because this is not caste here. This is white supremacy. Um, Benjamin Franklin's letter, who were these um, dark-skinned or tawny Germans? Um, I believe he called them tawny in the actual letter. Um, mind you, Germany is still not a place. It's just people who speak a similar lazy language. It becomes a place in 1871. So it's obviously not the pure-blooded whites that Hitler in them was. So who are these Germans that are here that the British are saying aren't white enough? You know, because when I look at Germans, I could classify them as being a, maybe a tinge whiter than the British even. I, I mean, I don't know how to judge white people. I'm just using my, my Negro senses here. But I look at their hair color, I look at their eye color, and I say, oh, they're, they're a little whiter. And also, uh, in the same breath of saying that, that she goes into Anglo-Saxon. Anglo is English and Saxon is German. Um, so it's a mixture. I mean, I don't know. 
Um, that, that's one of the things I was hoping this book got to was the cast in, as you just said, um, Gus and Germ, I mean, in Europe, so we could understand what these white people are doing. Um, the Japanese person, she said, an Asian speaking citizen. You know, I never heard of the language Asian. Um, but the Japanese guy said he's whiter than white people. He came with history. He even came with science. Uh, went to the Supreme Court. Ray Bader Ginsburg, you know, said, nope. Um, they didn't define white that way. Um, so white has nothing to do with history or science. Um, that's why I object to their sciences and stuff because that has nothing to do with it. I made all that up just to fit this this whole white supremacist uh, mindset because when this guy came with the science, you know, I'm closer to the carcasses than you guys are. Nope, shut them down. That ain't got nothing to do with this. Um, comparing Indians who um, live in the same area now, and then I believe she compared them to um, sundown towns and um, blacks not able to eat at the restaurant. They got to go through the side door. Like Two totally different things because in the United States, you're supposed to have the right to do whatever you want to. So they they're there's a law written there. There's a whole other um, thing that she's leaving out. Um, the story about the little kid at the swimming pool, man, that was heartfelt. We put him in a rubber float, pushed him around in a circle one time, shouted out, you better not touch the water. And I could just imagine, I thought of the um, Jackie Robinson movie, the parents and the little kids on the outside of the pool as he's going around that one lap, just, you nigger, you know, um, Little boy didn't even want to catch a ride home. He walked home, you know. Um, his parents should have should have definitely warned him, especially back then. Uh, I'm getting my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Thomas in New York. Uh, that's what I said. I thought quite a few folks had said it would have been great to get more of the European component. Uh, uh, other folks that we missed totally, totally. Uh, if you have commentary to share, proceed. Do we nab everybody thus far? Make sure. Can you be heard? <clears throat> yes, sir. Greetings, Todd. Greetings. Yes, sir. Gr greetings, Gus. Greetings to uh, everyone. Uh, I uh, had an interruption uh, phone call that I had to uh, to address, and uh, so I missed a lot. But one thing I did miss that y'all probably already talked about was uh, <laughs> this situ this. Uh, uh, tragic terroristic situation historical wise that took place in Florida that she gave an example of of uh, of and had the nerve to call it chaos i mean it's just it's ridiculous uh and uh, i was thinking that she was describing uh what took place with this uh young black male uh that was forced to uh to uh uh jump into uh a river, I guess, with, with his hands and legs tied. Uh, 
uh, talking about cash. Well, I was just thinking uh, because in and around that time, there was a uh, black male by the name of D.A. Dorsey, who was the first one of the first black millionaires uh, in this part of the world uh, and one of the first in the state of Florida. If if one of his children <laughs> sent letters to th- this white female, they would have been they would have been uh, forced to do the same thing be, if gotten captured, you know. Uh, so I, it's totally ridiculous on what she is talking about uh, in in describing uh, something as cast, and it's obvious that it's, it's uh, uh, acts of racism, white supremacy. You know, uh, uh, I don't I don't know on what type of situation that she is involved in, uh, whatever. But uh, to uh, misappropriate uh, uh, words uh, to actually, it's I mean inaccurate, and, and that that that's something that that can be very confusing to uh, a reader to have that type of understanding uh, of something being cast and it's, and it's, that's not accurate. Uh, it's, it's uh, actually examples or acts of racism and white supremacy. Thank you. Retired firefighter not feeling inspired from the first portion of the audio segment from this week. Um, I will check and see if there are other folks with hands. I will get another email in uh, from a caller. Let's see if I can read some of this now. I'll split this up. I'll read a little bit now. Uh, so the person writes in, whites sharing water with non-white people has been a long-running, long-running issue with them. When forced to allow black people into some of their public pools, they threw nails and broken glass into the water to keep them out, as opposed to not just swimming there. When another black male attempted to integrate a pool, they drained the entire pool of all its water and refilled it with fresh water in disgust of a black person being in their water. Eugene Williams paid for his violation of whites, sharing their water with non-white people with his life, and it set off a riot in Chicago simply by passing an invisible barrier. In response, whites stoned and drowned this black male teenager. Whites didn't even want to share a pool on alternate days because the water wouldn't be drained and refilled with new water and took the issue to courts. A little league baseball team won the championship and decided to celebrate at a swimming pool knowing that it was an issue for the black child to get into the water, but they still proceeded. It was just my expectations of whites to pull the tacky move on being non-racist by pushing the black child around in the pool on a floating device with no one else in the pool besides the white person that was pushing him, all while reminding the youth to not touch the water. They said the black male child was never the same, and I don't see how any black person can be the same after experiencing racism on any level over an an extended period of time. The author said the U.S. created a system based on racial absolutism. While I'm not totally sure what that is, it sounds like to me a system based on racial classification. She refuses to use racism, but but I think this just shows she's making a deliberate, conscious decision not to use the most accurate term for this problem. She continuously calls CASED. In her antidote about South Africa using a different formula for classifications on race, she admits they're both formulas of white supremacy. Confusion 
confusion, confusion. The author speaks to a time in history when Italians weren't accepted as white. We've seen this with the Irish, and I can slightly see this in process with so-called Hispanics. Does anyone know of any detailed work on why the Italians were ultimately allowed to be white? Uh, Neely Fuller Jr., I think, has, has talked about this in saying that the white people, I think kind of what Thomas in New York, and I believe that was Silent Warrior in Norway, and some of the other listeners who were saying, I wish he had talked more about uh, the feudal system uh, in Europe, that white people do a lot. They have a hierarchy amongst themselves, right, where they will do fighting, uh, the, oh, you're, you're a med, and the Nordics are better, and all of that type of thing. I've heard Mr. Fuller submit that Italians, uh, Irish, all these other groups, they are all white, right? They might come here, and you don't get to be super privileged, high-cased white person, if you want to call it that. You don't get to be that immediately, but they're moving right on through. You change your name, behave, say nigger a few times. Okay, cool in the game. Now you can move on up uh, to the high ranks of white people. But even when they're low-rank white people, you didn't hear her talking about Italians having to go to the Supreme Court to say that they're white. You didn't hear her talking about, I, oh, I'm reading somebody else. This is not mine. Uh, do, 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 get their last one in. Uh, actually, I'm going to pause right there and continue because they have more, and some of this goes into the portion that we didn't read. So I'm going to stop there, and we'll pick this up after the second audio segment. Um, I will get to some of my notes as well. And there were – this book, I will point it out for readers, listeners. We've read a number of books where I felt like, oh, wow, this is a trip down memory lane. This book has a lot of references to authors, books, uh, people who have been guests on the program or folks' books that we've read in the book club. Uh, Medical Apartheid was one such book uh, where lots and lots of the books and things referenced, guests on the program, things that we've covered. This is another one. And I said sometimes it might be, hey, we get to read a book and hear a lot of familiar names and stories and that type of thing, so that makes it really enjoyable, like whoopee. I thought that was somewhat the case of medical apartheid. Not the case at all here. If anything, it's been, oh, wow, since I have more detail about some of the incidents being mentioned, it's even more unpleasant (laughs) to hear it given short shrift with inaccurate terms. Uh, So let's see. Notes. Endogamy. Uh, This whole – the reason that I took the the image for this book down and just put up the picture of Isabel Wilkerson with her white husband, Brett Hamilton, cowbell, particularly if you're going to be talking about sexual intercourse frequently throughout the book and presenting it as though loving and black people not being able to have sex with white people is a bad thing. Oh, yeah. This is a victim of white supremacy in a tragic arrangement. I have to keep that in the forefront uh, while reading this book. Unfortunately, that was not the case when we read The Warmth of Other Sons, even though I would have mentioned that if I had known it at the time, but she just is not talking about all of that from that angle and Totally different books. Um, Not for the better, this one. Uh, Let's see. When she's talking about all of this, I cannot emphasize enough, like, white people, when they talk about no marriage, and that's the way that we constantly frame, that is very different from, we're not going to have sex with the black people. Even some of the white people, Strom Thurmond, who have loudly proclaimed, the Negroes are inferior, stay away from the Negroes, they can't all that. 
And as soon as it gets dark, and sometimes they don't even wait for that, you're raping children, no less, not even a grown, quote, unquote, black person. You're raping a 14-year-old. That's what I mean about this is super inaccurate. It's not about no sex with black people. It is about power dynamics. And you have to make that flagrantly clear. We talked about this with Jacqueline Battalore. Maybe we're not going to get married. That's a power dynamic situation. You might come and get resources and a whole lot of other things. We can roll around in the bushes. Thing, no problem. And white people have enjoyed that for uh, white men. There was some white male patriarchy here, too, just another component of the inaccuracy. And white women have enjoyed raping black males, black females, and black children for the duration of white supremacy racism and have bragged about doing so frequently. Uh, let's see. When she says, endogamy enforces case boundaries by forbidding marriage outside of one's own group and going so far as to prohibit sexual relations or even the appearance of romantic interest across the case lines. That is totally false. You, she, Isabel Wilkerson, Cowbell, referenced uh, Edward Baptist. The half has never been told. It's not possible. In fact, that book, and she cites it here, directly contradicts that. How do you have whole slave shacks that are set up? I'm a white racist, and I want to come and rape a colored gal. How do you have whole slave pens set up? specifically for white men to come and rape a nigger gal. How is that possible if it's not supposed to be sex with niggers? How does that continue something where white people brag about this? White like me. Uh, the book Howard Griffith, 1960s. I think that's black like me. Excuse me. That's Tim Wise admitted racist title. Can't even be original, but black like me. Well, this white guy pretends to be black. That's one of the main themes. Uh, where white people just keep telling him, like, we practice racism, we'll rape your women whenever we feel like it. But other than that, like, you can't for nothing. And he was just stunned because how often this just kept happening to him. That's what I mean about it's totally false. And I feel like you're lying to, like, you know it's not false. And I'd ring my bell again. Uh, let's see. One of the earliest references to what would become to known as race in America across, doesn't say racism, in America across arose over the matter of sexual relations between a European and African in 1630, the Virginia General Assembly. We talked about this. That's what I mean. We talked about a lot of this stuff in detail over our 12 years here at the Cows. Jacqueline Battalore, we talked about this case. She uses correct terms, and she talks about the power dynamic. In fact, we talked about this twice in her two visits uh, on the program, uh, 2010 and 2013. She was a speaker at the White Privilege Conference in Wisconsin, 2010, where I saw her in person. She asked me, anyway, you have to go back in the archives and listen to all that. We talked about all this in detail more accurately. Uh, let's see. Uh, by the time of Davis's sentencing, European men had been having sex with African women, often without consent. Pause right there. Now, this is the second time. If a white person had done this, where they're repeatedly saying that European slavers were having sex with African women without consent, I think a whole lot of folks would be saying, whoa, this author is practicing race, particularly with a white man. Like, oh, my God, we got some patriarch, you're just like the no-count president, you Harvey Weinstein, you. What do you mean saying that having sex? That is rape. That's the second time. That's another one. I just moved back. She does have a white husband. It's rape. Don't minimize it. It's rape. 
And this is another one where I'm so glad we have read much better books. I mean, substantially. Like this book totally would be in the running for worst book ever if it were not for The Hate You Give, Black Love is a Revolutionary Act, Nutricide, Wretched of the Earth. But, I mean, it's right up there. Black males were raped too. This narrative that it's only black females who suffer rape, we talked about that, Dr. Tommy Curry, the man not in my top ten. I'll even pause here. I think we had a really, in, talk about inaccurate, what's the difference between this book and the man not? To even compare these two books, you clearly do not have a written copy of this book and or the man not. You are clearly not paying attention to even compare these books. They're not the same at all. Anyway, black males, black females, and black children were raped, and I would even stop. I won't take issue, but I'll say it's super inaccurate on this program. We don't use males or females. Let's just take a case with Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Now, if you want to call a 14-year-old, a teenager, an African woman, fine. That's not accurate, and you're still minimizing the horror, the terrorism of what it means to be white, slavery, all of that. Thomas Jefferson is almost 40, and he's raping a 14-year-old. That's child rape. That's not even having non-consensual sex with an African woman, but whatever. Cowbell. Uh, let's see. We finally get the use of the word rape, so this is about the third time that she talks about this. Now we get rape super lame. You start things off correctly. Like I said, if I was someone who did not know about a lot of this information and this was my first time coming to this, like, wow, you are giving me a really lame foundation. It should never be accessible to talk about Thomas Jefferson having non-consensual sex. Come on. The clip that we started today with in India, they didn't say non-consensual sex. They said rape. That's in the title of the report. Call things by their proper names. And she's a journalist. She knows what I'm talking about. Uh, it was Bill Wilkerson I'm talking about. Uh, da, da, da. Let's see. The Supreme Court did not overturn these prohibitions until 1967. Again, why is she talking about the loving Supreme Court case? She didn't give a lot of detail. That's another one. I always pause people. Now, the white man in that case was 17. What I just said, the black female in that case was 11. That's something you want to brag about? 2020, we don't even have to talk about it. That's statutory rape. Nothing to discuss. 911, like to report rape, not non-consensual sex, rape. And I guarantee you if it was 1967, 1807, 2027, if it had been a 17-year-old black male, an 11-year-old white female, no one would brag about this case. Next. Oh, here we go again. The protocol was strictly enforced against lower-cased men and upper-cased women. Lower-cased men and upper-cased Now, see, that's what I mean, the confusion. Are you talking about black males and white women? Then say that. While upper-cased white men... The people who wrote the laws kept full and flagrant access to lowercase women, black females, whatever their age or marital status. In this way, the dominant gender of the dominant caste, in addition to controlling the livelihood and life chances of everyone beneath them, pause right there. In addition to all this convoluted language, make it plain. That's the title of one of Malcolm X's documentaries. Make it plain. 
this right here, all this mumbo-jumbo where you can't even clearly identify what you're talking about, and it's not accurate. Again, the man not race, class, genre, and the dilemmas of black manhood and the delectable Negro, we just keep rolling them out, tons of illustrations where white women were raping black males on the plantation and beyond, and then that goes right into the narrative. Then if you get caught, oh, my gosh, the Negro child, they make whole movies about that. She, you're going to tell me that you didn't read uh, what is the, uh, the one that's set in No Count, Alabama? Uh, it'll come to, they did an update, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. That's the whole premise of it. Some of the most popular, beloved pieces of American literature are about that. White woman, ooh, Nicra, mm, take advantage of rape some of the dominant caste women. All of that is nonsense. It's inaccurate, and it feeds into the narrative. It's white. The same thing they say about the election. Oh, it's white male patriarchy, and they conveniently leave out 52% of white female voters from all socioeconomic backgrounds supported President Trump. You don't have a system of white supremacy without white women, white men, white children, and they all take advantage of the spoils of terrorizing Negroes, including raping them. Next. Oh, my God. And then she kills it with the metaphor. She's done that throughout the text. So then she says, at the same time, it reminded everyone in the hierarchy of the absolute power of the dominant caste men, not the white women. This was a cloud that hung over the lives of everyone consigned to the lower caste for most of the time that, ha that there has been a United States of America. Next, let's see. When I heard the anecdote, number one, I'm curious to know how she got this letter, but the anecdote about Willie James, this is a little black child, 1944, who wrote this letter to a white child. Being truthful, when I heard all this, I said, wow, this child has some really, like, no-count wayward parents. <laughs> that was, I mean, I shouldn't be laughing because this is real, but, I mean, that's what I thought. Like, man, like, what? What are you doing? Like, how, did you talk to this child at all? Like, I'm hearing the letter that he wrote to this white girl and everything. Like, did you – they have all this nonsense in 2020 about the talk. Like, was there any dialogue about this? I remember Mr. Fuller said his parents didn't talk to him about racism. He was growing up, you know, during this time period. He's a little bit older, but still, just like, man, is there no – hey, no reckless eyeballing, no love letter to these white women. I mean – Anyway, I was very curious about where she got the letter, but I did think, like, wow, what are you doing, parents? Uh, I'm glad I don't have children. Uh, let's see. Oh, man, Dr. Harry T. Moore. Uh, wow, that's what I said. We read. We covered a lot. I, the warmth of other sons goes into a lot more detail about many of these cases, including Dr. Harry T. Moore. That's why that book is in my top ten. This book is not. Like, it is about as far from the top ten as you can get. Dr. Harry T. Moore, he and his wife, killed in Florida on Christmas Day, no less, for his work in cases like this. Uh, he and his wife, uh, the religion of white supremacy killed on white Jesus' birthday. Uh, let's see. She used the term honorary whiteness in the book, uh, talking about how in South Africa, racists, white supremacists would use that term for racially ambiguous people. That would just be another reason to reinforce why Mr. Fuller suggests that we not use that term, because it is not about reducing confusion. 
that's just another one of those. We can just use whatever we want to help us maintain the system. If these people were white, you would just call them white. That's not what they do. You call them honorary white. That's why I wanted to question. What's the difference between an honorary white person and a white person? Lots of confusion. It's white and non-white, and that's it. Let's see. I was stunned when she gave the anecdote about the African-American male who managed to become an architect, and he trained himself to read the literature upside down. Like, wow, talk about compensatory. And they say we're lazy and don't read. Is it anybody here? <laughs> like, you are good. I read upside down all the time. Like, I don't need light. I don't need the book to be right side up. My peepers work great. Let's see. Oh, man, the metaphor. She killed it. She killed it with the metaphors today. So she, she gives the anecdote about this white woman talking to her child about purity and you got to wash your hands and blah, blah, blah. And the child starts crying as she's washing her hands like, they're nasty, what are you doing? And she says, uh, the mother's fury frightened the little girl and brought her to tears as they stood there bent over the sink and the daughter's tears brought the mother to tears over the manufactured terror she had allowed to consume her and over the box that she realized in that moment had imprisoned her for all of her life. White people are imprisoned in a box because they practice racism, white supremacy, putting males in a pool for black people, tying a ch binding a child's hands and feet and putting them in water to watch them drown in front of their parent. That is a white person being imprisoned in a box. Some coon, some years ago, in a world still dominated by white supremacy racism, wrote a report called Interracial Relationships Are Sad, S-A-D-D, sad as an acronym, space, abstract, divided loyalties, right? All those letters stand for something, but the A for abstract. They will use a lot of abstractions. They will not talk about racism, white supremacy in a specific direct manner. There's a lot of that in this book and the divided loyalties and making space, making space for good white people. We've heard a lot of Heather Hare in this, but she said all of the, the different letters from the acronym. But, I mean, I hear this all the time. White people are not victims of white supremacy racism. Dylan Roof is not imprisoned because he chose to go into church and shoot, non-kill, non-black people. Strom Thurmond is not imprisoned in a box because he practices terrorism. All, this entire line of logic is generally the type of thing that I would expect from Cowbell and many non-white people who just have a very flawed understanding of what it means to be white, a flawed understanding of racism, white supremacy, and we're not even using those terms in this book, so what to expect. Uh, and it just keeps going. So we got the mother is in prison. What's the next one? Uh, all right. So we got this black man, or excuse me, a white man, in Look Magazine, which I chuckled because they did a report Mr. Fuller talked about after World War II. He said they had an article in Look Magazine saying that so-called uh, Japanese 
they can't fly planes. He said, this was right in the magazine. They, they can't fly planes. you got to have big straight eyes. they got all those slant eyes, slant eyes, gaps. They can't fly planes. Uh, if you can find a Look magazine from, like, the mid-1940s, look for that article. Uh, so you got this white man who's saying he thought he was prepared. I could go hang out with the black people. That's no big deal. And he got there. He's like, oh, my God. It's like they all got the Rona. I washed my hands immediately. Give me the hand sanitizer. Says up north on occasion, he found himself in situations where black people were permitted in the same work settings as whites. I thought I was entirely prepared emotionally and intellectually. The man, an editor at Look Magazine, recalled years later. But he discovered that he was a captive of his own conditioning, which he called a certain madness. Indeed. Now white people are, that is not madness. White people are dedicated to practicing racism, white supremacy. They're not captive. They're not in a box. They're not imprisoned. They're not victims of racism. They practice white supremacy racism. As I said, this rubric, this rhetoric is very, very popular uh, in the way that white supremacy racism is, is discussed frequently, the way that white people force non-white people to discuss this problem. Strive for accuracy. Uh, I will pause there. Uh, I do have other emails, but I'll stop and make sure. Didn't miss any callers. The number again is 720-716-7300. Decode 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, I double-checked the book. I don't think she said Asian speaking in the text either. I went back and, and looked and did not find that. So I don't think she used the phrase Asian speaking. If someone can find it in the text, please share. Uh, do any other folks have commentary, thoughts that they wanted to add? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, well, thank you. Greetings, um, guys. Uh, listeners and callers, I made a um, few notes. A lot of callers have already touched on. Oh, this is more from Dallas. I'm sorry, um, but I made a few notes. A lot of callers already touched on them. Um, the European men were having sex with um, African American women uh, without consent. Um, um, I too thought like that's a those are that's a lot of words to say rape, you know. And it, it, it seems like she's avoiding using direct terms and um and i find that offensive like it's because it it, it's it's draining personally for me by the way it's 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 kind of draining to to just to to continue listening to the book you know because i can i I feel offended or, or um with 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 her not being direct in her literature um Alabama didn't throw out um, um, its laws against an American should the year 2000. I didn't know that, so um, I thought that was interesting. Um, I, I do appreciate that quote, um, it, and um, like because it, it shows where we are, and you know uh, how like um, it, it shows that uh, the, the consistency of. of I guess the endogamy and um and um I too like like Henry in Chicago when I heard that word I th- I thought of um like pedigree 
you know. Um, and I thought that they were more or less training uh, their people uh, and not necessarily us. Uh, um, um, uh, the dominant cast men, um, uh, she, I, I wrote that down because she kept using that term and I, term and I too thought it was confusing um, because I'm, I'm thinking white men. You know, white men. I, like it, it's just a waste of words. Like I feel like this this book is filled with words that are unnecessary. Um, and um, that too is, is going to be like it, it's, it's going to be confusing for uh, for victims of. I feel like it's going to be confusing for victims of racism um, to 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 who whoever is who who is fortunate enough to have the audio book, you know, they, I don't feel like a lot of victims are going to want to continue reading this book um, just because it's a lot of just, just metaphor word salad. Um, um, the Little League uh, champion, Al, um, I, when I heard that story um, uh, about him, you know, being sat outside of the, the, the gate of the pool and watching everyone have fun. And then, you know, um, they begged the lifeguard to actually let him in. And and it took an hour for the lifeguard to agree. And, you know, and, and then everybody had to get out and they had to watch him. And and I, I don't believe that, that, that he was just being watched at the pool. Like, I think if, if he's ruining all of, if, if he's ruined everyone's time with his presence, I'm pretty sure they weren't just watching in silence. I can, I can only imagine what he heard from the crowd while the lifeguard was telling him not to touch the water. And I do feel like that was very traumatizing. Um, and that's just, it was just sad. It was really sad. Um, uh, and um, um, the, the mother with the daughter over the sink, um, explaining to her daughter that um, black people have germs, and and I I, I for one feel like the uh, the daughter wasn't crying because she was frightened by the mother's anger. I feel like the daughter might have been crying because she was getting her hands scrubbed with a Brillo pad. Um, that is a very very traumatizing thing to do to a child, you know, to, to scrub someone's hand touching another hand and I think a lot of uh, a lot of the training um, on anti-black racism is is coupled with with pain which associates trauma with contact with with black people like the uh, like the white male who explained that uh, anytime he had to touch a black male's hand he had he felt like the urge to wash it and he felt you know unclean but he didn't feel that way um, when he was being Bathed by his maids and his maids and caregivers who were also black, um, because they were subservient to him. I think they um, make it a point to make equality traumatic, especially the children. And I think that's how that's a, a key component in how to perpetuate the system of white supremacy. Um, that's all I have for me. I think I need my line. Mo in Dallas, much obliged, good sir. 
Uh, I will, that great observation about pain, uh, violation of the rules being associated with pain, that was twice, right? So the Brillo pad, right, which certainly would be a painful experience, having a Brillo pad on your skin uh, for touching a black person, and then the white fella who was raping a black person, they whipped him publicly in front of black people, pain, physical punishment for not following. Again, white people, you cannot be ignorant about racism. And I guess the only other thing I'd say quickly, uh, I think many, many black people adore this book. And it could be that they're posing as black people and it's white people. I'm sure a lot of white people do as well. But uh, it seems many, many black people absolutely love this book. Uh, I've heard them describe it as a tour de force. I don't even know what that means. Um, but think that it's amazing uh, that Isabel Wilkerson has produced some of her finest work and is doing an amazing job uh, detailing the horrors of taste uh, on a global scale. So I don't know. That's one to think about, I guess, as we read. You all might have just got a, a jaundiced perspective from listening to old Cooney, Gusty Renegade's uh, views about all of this. But many, 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 many people think this is spectacular literature. So can I add one thing? Uh, if you can make it brief so we can get to our second audio section. Oh, it, it will be brief. Um, I Certain that she has a, a, a white husband. I did a search on the internet for her for her husband, and I could not find a picture of him when I typed in Isabel Wilkinson's husband. I just saw um, a lot of images of of her her with her book, Oprah with her book, a lot of celebrities with her book. Like I I, I cannot find a picture of her husband on the internet. I thought that was very interesting. Um, that's all. Thank you. Her husband Brett Hamilton uh, has been dead, I believe, for maybe close to ten years. Uh, and she, Isabel Wilkerson, if you could mute your line, if you, everybody really could mute their line because no one is talking right now except for me. Everybody. Thank you. Uh, but her husband, Brett Hamilton, uh, has been deceased for a number of years, uh, I think close to a decade. So I think that's one. It's not like he's taking selfies or anything. Two, uh, Isabel Wilkerson on her uh, Blue Check Verified Facebook page, uh, she has a photo. That's the one that I'm using. She posted a photo uh, of she and her husband, Brett Hamilton. Three, I think her tragic arrangement is going to come up explicitly in the book. So we can just stay tuned and see when, when that happens. We're not even halfway through yet, so maybe we can stay tuned. It won't be a picture, I don't think, obviously, but the uh, mention from the author, but you can look online and, and get the verification on all that. Anywho, pushing forward, if you did not get to share everything, you all of your thoughts, just make a note. We will have ample time to share once the second audio segment is done. Uh, this is Isabel Wilkerson, the, uh, said the warmth of other sons back in 2013. Not the warmth of other sons. This is Isabel Wilkerson, Taste the Origins of Our Discontents. Audio segment number two. Pillar number five. Occupational hierarchy, the jatis, and the mudsil. When a house is being built, the single most important piece of the framework is the first wood beam hammered into place to anchor the foundation. That piece is called the mudsill, the sill plate that runs along the base of a house and bears the weight of the entire structure above it. The studs 
and subfloors, the ceilings and windows, the doors and roofing, all the components that make it a house, are built on top of the mud sill. In a cast system, the mud sill is the bottom cast that everything else rests upon. A Southern politician declared this central doctrine from the floor of the U.S. Senate in March 1858. In all social systems, there must be a class to do the menial duties, to perform the drudgery of life, Senator James Henry Hammond of South Carolina told his fellow senators. That is a class requiring but a low order of intellect and but little skill. Its requisites are vigor, docility, fidelity. Such a class you must have. It constitutes the very mudsill of society. He exulted in the cunning of the South, which he said had found a race adapted to that purpose to her hand. Our slaves are black, of another, and inferior race. The status in which we have placed them is an elevation. They are elevated from the condition in which God first created them, by being made our slaves. Hammond owned several plantations and more than 300 souls, having acquired this fortune by marrying the plain and callow young daughter of a wealthy landowner in South Carolina. He rose to become governor of the state and a leading figure in the antebellum South. Well before making this speech, he had established himself as one of the more repugnant of men ever to rise to the Senate, one scholar calling him nothing less than a monster. He is known to have repeatedly raped at least two of the women he enslaved, one of them believed to have been his daughter by another enslaved woman. His political career was nearly derailed when it became public that he had sexually abused his four young nieces, their lives so ruined that none of them ever married after reaching adulthood. In his diary, he spoke blithely of the nieces, blaming them for the intimacies. For these and other things, his wife left him, taking their children with her, only to later return. He rebounded from these malefactions to be elected to the U.S. Senate. But he is best known for the speech that distilled the hierarchy of the South, which spread in spirit to the rest of the country into a structure built on a mudsill. In so doing, he defined the fifth pillar of caste, the division of labor based on one's place in the hierarchy. Therein, he identified the economic purpose of a hierarchy to begin with, that is, to ensure that the tasks necessary for a society to function get handled whether or not people wish to do them, in this case, by being born to the disfavored sill plate. In the Indian caste system, an infinitely more elaborate hierarchy, the subcaste or jati to which a person was born, established the occupation their family fulfilled, from cleaners of latrines to priests in the temples. Those born to families who collected refuse or tanned the hides of animals or handled the dead were seen as the most polluted and lowest in the hierarchy, untouchable due to the dreaded and thankless, though necessary, task they were presumably born to fulfill. Similarly, 
African Americans, throughout most of their time in this land, were relegated to the dirtiest, most demeaning, and least desirable jobs by definition. After enslavement and well into the 20th century, they were primarily restricted to the role of sharecroppers and servants, domestics, lawn boys, chauffeurs, and janitors. The most that those who managed to get an education could hope for was to teach, minister to, attend to the health needs of, or bury other subordinate caste people. There is severe occupational deprivation in each country, wrote the scholars Sidney Verba, Bashiruddin Ahmed, and Anil Bhatt in a 1971 comparative study of India and the United States. A deprivation, at least in terms of level, of roughly similar magnitude. The state of South Carolina, right after the Civil War, explicitly prohibited black people from performing any labor other than farm or domestic work, setting their place in the caste system. The legislature decreed that no person of color shall pursue or practice the art, trade, or business of an artisan, mechanic, or shopkeeper, or any other trade, employment, or business besides that of husbandry or that of a servant under contract for labor, on his own account and for his own benefit, until he shall have obtained a license from the judge of the district court, which license shall be good for one year only. The license was set at an intentionally prohibitive cost of $100 a year, the equivalent of $1,500 in 2018. This was a fee not required of the dominant caste, whose members, having not been enslaved for a quarter millennium, would have been in better position to afford. The law went nominally out of effect during the decade known as Reconstruction, when the North took control of the former Confederacy, but it returned in spirit and custom after the North retreated and the former enslavers took power again, ready to avenge their defeat in the Civil War. In North Carolina, during slavery and into the era of sharecropping, people in the lowest caste were forbidden to sell or trade goods of any kind or be subject to 39 lashes. This blocked the main route to earning money from their own farm labors and forced them into economic dependence on the dominant caste. The caste order that followed slavery defined the Negroes as workers and servants of the whites, wrote the scholar Edward Reuter. The range of occupations was narrow, and many of those outside the orbit of common labor were closed to the Negroes. The South foreclosed on them any route to a station higher than that assigned them. Anything that causes the Negro to aspire above the plow handle, the cook pot, in a word, the functions of a servant, Governor James K. Vardaman of Mississippi said, will be the worst thing on earth for the Negro. God Almighty designed him for a menial. He is fit for nothing else. Those who managed to go north after the Civil War and in the bigger waves of the Great Migration, starting in World War I, found that they could escape the South, but not their caste. They entered the North at the bottom, beneath Southern and Eastern Europeans who might not yet have learned English, 
but who were permitted into unions and into better-served neighborhoods that barred black citizens, whose labor had cleared the wilderness and built the country's wealth. While there was no federal law restricting people to certain occupations on the basis of race, statutes in the South and custom in the North kept lower-caste people in their place. Northern industries often hired African Americans only as strike-breakers, and unions blocked them from entire trades reserved for whites, such as pipe-fitters or plumbers. City inspectors would refuse to sign off on the work of black electricians. A factory in Milwaukee turned away black men seeking jobs as they walked toward the front gate. In New York and Philadelphia, black people were long denied licenses merely to drive carts. Every avenue for improvement was closed against him, wrote William A. Sinclair, author of A History of Slavery and Its Aftermath, of the fate of the subordinate caste man. There were exceptions. Those select enslaved people, often the children of slaveholders, who were permitted to serve as carpenters or blacksmiths or in other trades, as would be required on large plantations, like Thomas Jefferson's at Monticello. Even in India, where there are thousands of castes within castes, within the four main varnas, no one occupation has but one caste assigned to it, wrote the anthropologists W. Lloyd Warner and Allison Davis. While in theory, caste demands occupational specialization, in practice, even the most ideally organized of the several castes, the Brahmins, have a great variety of occupations. The French anthropologist and philosopher Célestin Bouglet wrote that in the Indian caste system, one can distinguish six merchant castes, three of scribes, forty of peasants, twenty-four of journeymen, nine of shepherds and hunters, fourteen of fishermen and sailors, twelve of various kinds of artisans, carpenters, blacksmiths, goldsmiths and potters, thirteen of weavers, thirteen of distillers, eleven of house servants. Thus, the caste lines in America may have at one time been even starker than those in India. In 1890, 85% of black men and 96% of black women were employed in just two occupational categories, wrote the sociologist Steven Steinberg, agriculture and domestic or personal service. Forty years later, as the Depression set in and as African Americans moved to northern cities, the percentages of black people at the bottom of the labor hierarchy remained the same, though by then, nearly half of black men were doing manual labor that called merely for a strong back. Only 5% were listed as white-collar workers, many of them ministers, teachers, and small business owners who catered to other black people. North and South, the status of African Americans was so well understood that people in the dominant caste were loath to perform duties they perceived as beneath their station. A British tourist in the 1810s noted that white Americans well knew which tasks were seen as befitting only black people. White paupers in Ohio 
refused to carry water for their own use, wrote the historian David R. Rodiger, for fear of being considered like slaves. The historic association between menial labor and blackness served to further entrap black people in a circle of subservience in the American mind. They were punished for being in the condition that they were forced to endure, and the image of servitude shadowed them into freedom. As the caste system shape-shifted in the 20th century, the dominant caste found ever more elaborate ways to enforce occupational hierarchy. If white and colored persons are employed together, wrote the historian Bertram Doyle in the 1930s, they do not engage in the same tasks generally, and certainly not as equals. Negroes are seldom, if ever, put into authority over white persons. Moreover, the Negro expects to remain in the lower ranks, rising, if at all, only over other Negroes. No matter how well he does his job, Doyle wrote, he cannot often hope for promotion. Your place was preordained before you were born. A Negro may become a locomotive fireman, Doyle wrote, but never an engineer. Thus, caste did not mean merely doing a certain kind of labor. It meant performing a dominant or subservient role. There must be, then, a division of labor where the two races are employed, and menial labor is commonly supposed to be the division assigned to Negroes, Doyle wrote, and he must look and act the part. A black man in the 1930s was on his way to pay a visit to a young woman he fancied, which occasioned him to go into the town square. There, some white men approached him and forced him to procure overalls, saying he was too dressed up for a weekday. Slavery set the artificial parameters for the roles each caste was to perform, and the only job beyond the plow or the kitchen that the caste system openly encouraged of the lowest caste was that of entertainment, which was its own form of servitude in that world. It was in keeping with caste notions of their performing for the pleasure of the dominant caste. It affirmed the stereotypes of innate black physicality, of an earthiness based on animal instinct rather than human creativity, and it presented no threat to dominant caste supremacy in leadership and intellect. Making enslaved people perform on command also reinforced their subjugation. They were made to sing, despite their exhaustion or the agonies from a recent flogging or risk further punishment. Forced good cheer became a weapon of submission to assuage the guilt of the dominant caste and further humiliate the enslaved. If they were in chains and happy, how could anyone say that they were being mistreated? Merriment, even if extracted from a whip, was seen as essential to confirm that the caste structure was sound, that all was well, that everyone accepted, even embraced their station in the hierarchy. They were thus forced to co-sign on their own degradation, to sing and dance even as they were being separated from spouses or children or parents at auction. This was done to make them appear cheerful and happy, 
wrote William Wells Brown, a speculator's assistant before the Civil War, whose job it was to get the human merchandise into sellable condition. I have often set them to dancing, he said, when their cheeks were wet with tears. African Americans would later convert the performance role that they were forced to occupy and the talent they built from it into prominence in entertainment and in American culture disproportionate to their numbers. Since the early 20th century, the wealthiest African Americans, from Louis Armstrong to Muhammad Ali, have traditionally been entertainers and athletes. Even now, in a 2020 ranking of the richest African Americans, 17 of the top 20, from Oprah Winfrey to Jay-Z to Michael Jordan, made their wealth as innovators and then moguls in the entertainment industry or in sports. Historically, this group would come to dominate the realm carved out for them, often celebrated unless they went head-to-head against an upper-caste person, as did the black boxer Jack Johnson when he unexpectedly knocked out James Jeffries in 1910. The writer Jack London had coaxed Jeffries out of retirement to fight Johnson in an era of virulent race hatred, and the press stoked passions by calling Jeffries the Great White Hope. Jeffries's loss on that Fourth of July was an affront to white supremacy and triggered riots across the country, North and South, including 11 separate ones in New York City, where whites set fire to black neighborhoods and tried to lynch two black men over the defeat. The message was that even in an arena into which the lowest caste had been permitted, they were to know and remain in their place. For centuries, Enslaved people had been ordered to perform at the whim of the master, either to be mocked in the master's parlor games or to play music for their balls, in addition to their hard labors in the field. Menial and comic roles were the chief ones allotted to Negroes in their relationships with white people, wrote the anthropologists W. Lloyd Warner and Allison Davis of slavery-based caste relations, that worked their way into American culture. The caste system took comfort in black caricature as it upheld the mythology of a simple court jester race whose jolly natures shielded them from any true suffering. The images soothed the conscience and justified atrocities. And thus minstrelsy, in which white actors put burnt cork on their faces and mocked the subordinate caste, became a popular entertainment as the Jim Crow regime hardened after slavery ended. Whites continued the practice at fraternity parties and talent shows and Halloween festivities well into the 21st century. At the same time, black entertainers have long been rewarded and often restricted to roles that adhere to caste stereotype. The first African-American to win an Academy Award, Hattie McDaniel, was commended for her role as Mammy, a solicitous and obesely de-sexed counterpoint to Scarlett O'Hara, the feminine ideal, in the 1939 film Gone with the Wind. The Mammy character was more devoted to her white family than to her own, 
willing to fight black soldiers to protect her white enslaver. That trope became a comforting staple in film portrayals of slavery, but it was an ahistorical figment of caste imagination. Under slavery, most black women were thin, gaunt even, due to the meager rations provided them, and few worked inside a house as they were considered more valuable in the field. Yet the rotund and cheerful slave or maidservant was what the dominant caste preferred to see, and McDaniel and other black actresses of the era found that those were the only roles they could get. Because many of these women had been raised in the North or the West, they knew little of the Southern Negro vernacular that scripts called for and had to learn how to speak in the exaggerated, at times farcical way, that Hollywood directors imagined that black people talked. This mainstream derision belies the serious history of arbitrary abuse of African Americans under slavery when their degradation was entertainment for the dominant caste. In one case, two planters in South Carolina were dining together at one of their plantations. The two were passing the time, discussing their slaves, and debating whether the slaves had the capacity for genuine religious faith. The visiting planter said he didn't much believe they did. The planter who was hosting begged to differ. I have a slave who I believe would rather die than deny his savior, he said. The guest ridiculed the host and challenged him to prove it. So the host summoned an enslaved man of his and ordered him to deny his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The enslaved man affirmed his faith in Jesus and pleaded to be excused. The master, seeking to drive home his point to the fellow slave owner, kept asking the man to deny Jesus, and the man, as expected, kept declaring his faith. The host then whipped the enslaved man, now for disobedience, and continued to whip him, the whip cord cutting to bone. The enslaved man of faith died in consequence of this severe infliction. Similarly, soldiers of the Third Reich used weakened and malnourished Jewish prisoners for entertainment. An SS squad leader who oversaw the construction of the firing range at Sachsenhausen forced prisoners to jump and turn like dancing bears around a shovel for his amusement. One of them refused to dance, and for this, the SS squad leader took the shovel and beat him to death with it. Every act, every gesture, was calculated for the purpose of reminding the subordinate caste in these otherwise unrelated caste systems of the dominant caste's total reign over their very being. The upper caste, wrote the 19th century author William Goodall, made the claim of absolute proprietorship in the human soul itself. Context of white supremacy. We will pick up there, let's see, pillar number six, dehumanization and stigma. That's what we'll pick up at for next Thursday. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943. 
pound, press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see. Uh, I'm going to make sure I get in all the emails. That is my number one task. So email number one. So this is where we stopped that last time. Uh, caller wrote in. Uh, Louisiana had a system of estimating how much Negro you had in you just by looking at the individual person. This seems like the most accurate way to classify whites and non-whites in that day. The technology wasn't developed to the point of testing a person's DNA for their Negro level. We know of too many cases of people being able to pass, if able to, regardless of where the Negro blood was in their lineage. It would seem pretty simple just to move from one place to another and begin to live as a white person if you were able to do so. When black patrons went to white establishments, it wasn't uncommon for the establishment to break the dishes and cups after the black people used them. Also, when blacks had to sit in a designated section or even outside to attend a white church, I just thought back to Dr. Welsing when she used to say black self-respect had been annihilated by whites. The mudsill metaphor is incongruent. Anytime you understand how something is built, you should understand precisely how to deconstruct it. That has yet to be shown by Ms. Wilkerson or any other non-white person. James Hammond was a pedophile, incestuous rapist, vile white supremacist, and he was still elected to the Senate. Happens all the time. Just shows you you can demonstrate all those behaviors and still be held in high regards that a non-white person higher regards than a non-white person that doesn't partake in any of those behaviors. The author says there are thousands of cases within cases in India. I have no idea how that's an equal comparison to white supremacy in the United States or in Germany. Racist Bertram Doyle wrote Negroes are seldomly put in positions above a white person. Whites have refined their system so well that it's not uncommon double negative, to see a black person in a so-called position of power. And it'll completely confuse a non-white person to think that the system is in danger by the appointment of a non-white person to a so-called prominent position. The author stated that many times victims were forced to co-sign their own degradation by singing, dancing, and smiling while being sold away from their families at auctions. That is something we see today while not under the circumstances of being sold from our families, but when subtle racism is being practiced against us, many victims go along with it by using these types of actions as defense mechanisms. I believe it compounds the stress and ultimately affects us negatively after a while. It was said when Jack Johnson defeated Jim Jeffries, some whites in New York tried to lynch two black males. That says a lot about the white mentality. They wanted to kill random black males because a white man lost a boxing match. I think that's happened a few times. Floyd Mayweather, yeah. Uh, man, the antidote about the black male's devotion to white Jesus was very telling. He believed so much in white Jesus that whites made a game out of trying to make him denounce his faith that I'm sure they gave him. And because he didn't, he was beat to death for disobedience. White supremacy is a sickness. That concludes my observations for the week. Whammo, one more to read. Uh, we'll get callers on the phone line before we get to the rest of the email. Uh, number again, 720-716-7300. Uh, all the folks who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. If you did not get to speak at all before, you should get your hand up immediately so you can go first uh, so we don't have people uh, hanging out till the last minute or so who have not shared at all. So everybody with a hand up, 
line should be open. I'll look out for new hands as I see them. Can I be heard again? Retired firefighter in Florida. Yes, I have a question. Uh, so far in the book, has she ever distinguished uh, in her understanding the difference between caste and racism, white supremacy? She did that two sections ago, but many of the folks who went back, I think I have to go back to get the exact chapter, but it was about two weeks ago when she gave her explanation as to why she's using the term caste. I just think that's a better term than racism to describe what was happening. Uh, and I even played an audio segment where she did that as well. But many of the folks who read that section said that it did not – they were still confused that it didn't seem like she did a good job of being clear in making the distinction between the two, case and racism. Okay. Okay. Because I, I would – I mean, based on what I've been hearing, uh, it's, it sounds uh, – like it as far as the report that uh, the people who heard her give a, give a meaning, uh, she must have been confused on it. Uh, I also uh, would, uh, uh, what was I thinking, uh, to state that uh, 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 yeah, uh, also what everybody has been saying, well, most people have been saying that uh, if she is, if she was to talk about caste at the level that she's talking about, it would have been a much more better book if, if she would be making a distinction with people who are racially classified as white. Uh, because in this part of the world, especially, it has been prevalent. Uh, uh, just two examples. Uh, well, one example of uh, the quote-unquote great football coach, Vince Lombardi. He had a hard time becoming a head football coach because of him being an Italian. Uh, he, could, he couldn't even be the head football coach at, uh, of the New York Giants. where That's where he last was an assistant coach at. Uh, uh, because because of he was he was Italian, uh, you know, and uh, and and oh, also the uh, uh, John uh, John F. Kennedy. It was such a big surprise that he was that a quote unquote Irish Catholic was able to be the president of the United States, you know, and uh, so those are just two well known examples. Uh, it would have been a much more better book. Uh, from uh, if she would have uh, context cast in that fashion, you know. But this thing of of trying to force it into as a substitute for racial the white supremacy is is like <sighs> the best word I can say is ridiculous. And that's all I have to say right now. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida, Dr. Harry T. Moore. There's a PBS documentary on Dr. Harry T. Moore, uh, Freedom Never Dies, the legacy of Harry T. Moore. Might have some of the incident that she wrote about today and or I'm sure uh, the bombing of he and his wife on Christmas Day. Uh, other folks that we missed, if you have commentary, proceed. Can I bear it? 
Henry in Chicago, yes, sir. All right. Uh, James Henry Hammond, rapist, uh, with his slaves and his nieces, which I assume are white, um, but yet he still ascends to uh, governorship. Uh, did I say governorship? I think governorship and a senator. Uh, well, one of the higher offices of the residence he was living in. But um, what it means to be white, um, he's a prime example. Uh, you can do the most you know, uh, foul things and yet still be given the benefit of the doubt and run for office. Uh, so Donald Trump is not the first and he won't be the last. Um, another character that uh, uh, Ms. Wilkerson brings up is uh, James K. Vardaman uh, when she put that quote in there. And I was thinking uh because I was looking him up, and they, uh, he's nicknamed as the Great White Chief. And he lived around the time that Ben Tillman did, who was also known as Pitchfork Ben. And apparently he is, he is much as much of a, of a, of a uh, white supremacist as Ben Tillman. So I was thinking, like, if you find a biography on him, we could probably study him as well. But he was also the – as. Ms. Wilkerson said he was also the former Mississippi governor as well, who used lynching uh, as a form of maintaining white supremacy in his state. Um, one of the emails that you had uh, read uh, previously, and I, I think firefighter, firefighter, uh, retired firefighter touched on it as well, is her forcing caste uh, as white supremacy, because the reading now, you know, it, she it, it's it's a little bit towards what she was strong at uh, with uh, the the wump of the sons and telling these narratives of of you know uh, the experiences of black people, uh, non-white black people, in regards to you know being victims of uh, white terrorism and white racism, and it's like. Uh, you know, she she brings those narratives up, and, it, and you know that's probably her strong point of it. But you know, forcing caste uh, into it is just you know it, it gets confusing. If I could remember too, uh, in regard to what retired firefighter asked earlier about um, caste and white supremacy, I think she had elevated caste over racism, white supremacy, and I think she said that was like the most oppressive system. Uh, that we don't know about, but just seems like everything she's saying is kind of pointing to, you know, white supremacy. And, and, and I agree with a retired firefighter. It'd been a much better book if she would just, you know, use white supremacy, you know, in it. Uh, and also, one last thing, I got an email uh, as an invitation to join a special event that Miss Wilkerson is going to be doing on Zoom. Uh, it, the event is sponsored by uh, the Cornell Science uh, Social Science Center. It is a lecture that she's going to do on Zoom on Wednesday, October 21st at 6.30 uh, p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, in regards to um, the title of, of it is Our Racial Moment of Truth. And she will be discussing uh, racial injustice as a national challenge and what history can teach us 
and what we can do to work to resolve it. Uh, that's all I have on me, my line. See if you can ask a question. That would be uh, spectacular. Um, oof, we'd have to cut cut right to the chase. You could even ask about that, you know, in terms of most accurate words. Pick out a passage where you feel like things are not clear, the metaphors, whatever you think would see if you. They have opportunity where you can ask a question, man. Take advantage. Um, yeah, I don't know if they'll do questions. I know with some of the Zoom thing, uh, Zoom setups, it might. It's not always feasible to have all that uh, participation. But uh, yeah, yeah, I seriously doubt the same folks would offer a forum for. Uh, and see, they're not using racism, white supremacy either. So, not talking seriously. I just keep going back. We had white authors on the program this week, not talking about things seriously not using correct, accurate terms frequently lets me know that we're not really serious about solving this problem. But I could be wrong. If you get to participate, let us know, and hopefully you can ask a really good question. Uh, much obliged, Henry and Chicago. Bobby Hurt. Thomas in New York. Yes, yes. So I agree with both callers. Um, I don't like um, the inaccuracy. Uh, and contrast to the other black female we did two of her books um medical apartheid and um the environmental racism um javierta washington i think javierta washington her books are very accurate like you know it's just like the opposite um even though it's two different contexts things she writes about lynchings in india i looked it up and um so much literature about lynchings in India, but I can't find any pictures. And I'm like, man, I can find dozens of pictures of black people hanging from trees, but how come I can't find any of this lynchings in India? So I'm not too sure about that. Um, I, re- I listened very briefly to a, another station's uh, book study session on the same book, and when you uh, aren't being critical and you start disagreeing with the authors, really just shows how confused we are. Uh, her glossing over the rapes of black females, this is my last point, um, by white males, white men, especially those in position of power. The largest rape case of my lifetime, uh, and she's a writer and a journalist, um, a case with the conviction uh, of a cop, <laughs> um, of black females, 13 alleged black females, I, I can't find any writings of Miss Wilkinson on any of Daniel Holtzfuss cases at all. You know, and when I put her name and Daniel Holtzfuss together, um, on the first page, the cows pops up, but I can't find anything on her. You would say, wow. Um, so, you know, I wonder if this is because of her being constantly raped at home, you know, based off her tragic arrangement or what. But does it seem like she's has a lot of um, high esteem for black females, um, high regard for black females' um, bodies. And I'm here my line. Thank you, guys. That is funny in a not comical way. I did a search and the cows popped up. Uh, <laughs> we have talked extensively about Daniel Holtzclaw. I wrote about the Holtzclaw rape case, and we had several several plural uh, programs uh, on 
the whole rape case, both when he was originally arrested and all the way through the trial and conviction and everything. But many, many folks, mainstream, and I believe Isabel Wilkerson may have still been, like, regularly writing for the New York Times at that time. I'd have to go back and double-check. Um, but many folks did not cover that case at all. Um, everybody, white people, non-white people, had very little to say about that case, uh, particularly when it initially happened. But anywho, emails, make sure I get them all in. Let's see. Uh, all right, this is from a different person totally uh, who wrote in. Uh, I find the pillars of case analogous to Mr. Fuller's areas of people activity. <clears throat> For me, there is a great deal of overlap between the pillars. As opposed to Fuller's categories, which conceptually are easier to distinguish. For example, pillar number one, divine will and the laws of nature, could correlate with Fuller's seventh area of people activity, religion. Pillar number three, endogamy and the uh, control of marriage and mating. Fuller's correlation, sex. Logical. Number one, restricting marriage to people within the same case. This is an ironclad foundation of any caste system, going so far as to prohibit sexual relations or romantic interest. Sexual contact between whites and non-whites is not strictly prohibited and is an important method of domination and abuse. I think somebody said that. Uh, number two, endogamy by closing off legal family connection blocks the chance for empathy or a sense of shared destiny between caste. There is no evidence that a so-called marriage that so-called marriages between whites and non-whites will end the global system of racism, white supremacy. Duh! But that gets suggested all the time, doesn't it? Cowbell. Number three. Thus, the terrors of the Southern caste system continued, carried forth without penalty, sanctioned as it was by the U.S. government. The caste system had become not simply Southern but American. This is an incredibly false statement given that, for example, slavery, white terrorism, was government-sanctioned and practiced in, in the North at the very beginning of the so-called United States. Pillar mm. number four, it's, you shouldn't be reading a book where everybody has to keep saying, wow, I don't understand what she meant there. I don't understand what she meant there. That's not clear. Man, is that accurate? I don't think that's accurate. I don't think that, that should not be happening, like, we can say a whole lot of things, but I mean, at minimum, a book should be clear, accurate. Continuing, pillar number four, purity versus pollutions. He says uh, Fuller's correlation would be law. Number one, this, the United States, was a punitive model of racial superiority as opposed to the South African model, which rewarded those with any proximity to whiteness and created an official mid-case of colored people. <laughs> this statement does not seem accurate. Colorism and proximity to whiteness has had benefits for those who are classified as not white but less melanated in the U.S. case system, even though they may not be official. For example, President Obama. Number two, cowbell. South Africa's white minority had an incentive to grow its power and numbers by granting honorary whiteness to those deemed close enough. Honorary whiteness should be defined by the author. Excellent point. Number three, Cubans who had been uncertain as to how they would be classified 
were overjoyed to discover that they were allowed to sit in the white section. I thought this may be evidence of the earlier acceptance of Cubans as white. Mr. Fuller talked about that, too. He said a lot of the so-called Cubans who were allowed to come here were classified as white, and the darker folks, nope, stay on the island. Number, uh, pillar number five, occupational hierarchy, the Jatis and the Mudsill, Fuller's Coalition, Fourth Area Labor. Number one, Senator Henry James, uh, Henry, Senator James Henry Hammond of South Carolina, his sexual deviancy has been discussed in more than one cow's broadcast. The half has never been told. I kept thinking, like, did we hear about Because he talked about Mr. Potter. It was so many examples of that. Remember the uh, Mr. Potter in the half has never been told? He got upset. He was a white man who got upset. He thought the guy was fooling around on his wife, and he chopped off his penis. This was a white guy. He chopped off his penis. It was so much of that uh, in the book, but... I have to go back and get that section on Mr. Hammond. The half has never been told. Hmm. Continuing, number two, no person of color shall pursue or practice the art, trade, employment, or business besides that of husbandry or that of servant under contract for labor until he shall have obtained a license from the judge of the district court, which shall be good for one year only restricting non-white victims, particularly black people, from skilled trades via barriers to education, prohibitive startup costs, expensive licensure, etc., has been utilized for centuries in the U.S. to great effect and continues today. It has been often mentioned on workplace racism every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Absolutely. Just had, I think it was our victim in New Jersey who said they were doing that. He was trying to get his license for uh, operating his trucking business. He said they were messing around and the IRS and all this nonsense and making it take a really long time and blaming it on the Rona. Uh, let's see, number three. In 1890, only 5% were listed as white collar. I think this was an interesting statistic. I wish the author had provided an analysis of whether things have changed very much during current day. For example, I found a statistic that 2 to 3% of executives in U.S. corporations are black. Sounds about accurate. Maybe an overstatement. Number four, menstruacy became a popular form of entertainment after slavery ended. Whites continued the practice at fraternity parties and talent shows and Halloween festivities well into the 21st century. I would characterize menstruacy as foundational to American entertainment, not just as a form within a larger context. See the cows broadcast The Showman and the Slave, 2012, and the book by the same name. Very good book. That is the foundation of the circus. He talked about that black person. That is the whole foundation. He talks about it in the book. They started the circus with presenting a black uh, female pretending that she was the old, like a thousand years old, and then when she died, they made that a part of the circus, necrophilia that will put her dead body out and you can come and gawk at a dead negra. Uh, let's see. The archetype of menstruacy has been refined through the years but continues in today's entertainment, the major difference being that the characters once played by whites in blackface are now played by black people. Pillar mm-hmm. number six, dehumanization and stigma. The Nazis approached human deprivation as a science. They calculated number of calories required for a certain – wait a minute. Did we get that far? Hmm. I'm not sure we got – I'll pause there because I don't think we got that far. We did not get that far. That's for next week. So we'll have to come back to that uh, next week. Much obliged for the commentary. Uh, let's see. Yeah, that's very next – up for next week. Let's see. 
So the notes that I took during the second audio segment, and then I'll double-check and see if listeners uh, have any additional thoughts or questions. Uh, I did. Thomas in New York said, I think I said that before, that we are the minority in that most of the black people that I'm aware of who are aware, have read this book, have, you know, heard about it, two thumbs up. They like Like, I have not, you know, heard a great bit of, of critique uh, or anything of that nature. Like, yeah, it's something a little like this is no one. I have not heard, you know, other people saying that they have problems with this book. It's got rave reviews. It's a bestseller. So this would be yet another illustration of what I said consistently my conclusion on the system of white supremacy, the answer is five. Everybody else's answer is like negative two billion and four. I'm not saying I'm correct. I'm just saying that our answers are very, very different. It's not like we're close on this massive separation in terms of our conclusion about this problem. Notes from the second audio segment. Uh, so this is pillar... Pillar number five, when a house is being built, oh, she started right there. I just said that. When you have a foundation, because I suspect a whole lot of people are reading this book, they are not Cal's listeners or have not covered the amount of material that we have in the book club and authors. Like I suspect a lot of people reading this book have not read Ian Honey Lopez, White by Law. He was a guest on the Cal's. One of our first talk about foundation, one of our first guests on the Cal's. Very important. In fact, in talking about some of those cases where all of these non-black, non-white people went to the Supreme Court to see if they could protest and get white citizenship, Mr. Lopez, when he was on the broadcast, pointed out they could have went and uh, petitioned and said, hey, we're colored. Make us black. Then we could be citizens because black people were citizens at that time. They didn't do that. They understand if you want to be a citizen – be a white person, even in 1940, 1930, don't want to mess around and be a citizen that's colored, Negro, eh, not going to work out. Let's see. But she starts out with, uh, when a house is being built, the single most important piece of the framework is the first wood beam hammered in place to anchor the foundation. That piece is called the mud sill, the sill plate that runs along the base of the house and bears the weight of the entire structure. I was saying for people reading this book, you haven't read White by Law. You haven't read Mr. Fuller's work, Urugu, Medical Apartheid, The Half Has Never Been Told. You don't have a thorough understanding of racism, white supremacy, or at least a better. Man, you could be all kinds of confused on this. You haven't read The Man Not, Race, Class, Genre, and uh, Dilemmas of Black Manhood. So your thinking is that the only people who could have been raped on the plantation are black females. No problem with what's being written here. Continuing. Oh, you all did a great job talking about the uh, white people do not care about children. He was even raping his own uh, nieces, I believe, in the uh, text. Uh, let's see. See if we can find a biography on uh, some of these folks, Mr. Hammond, some of the other folks that we heard about here. Uh, let's see. Mm-hmm. With all that about what's happening in Kenosha, they said Milwaukee turned away black men seeking jobs as they walked towards the front gate in New York and Philadelphia. Brotherly love, black people were long denied licenses merely to drive carts. Are you serious? That's like a wagon, basically. 
she mentioned Jack Johnson. That's another cowbell. And I'm a, see, now that's the type of thing where I'd have to pause because it's Isabel Wilkinson's not dumb. The Warmth of Other Suns is spectacular and spectacularly well-researched. She's not dumb. She knows who Jack Johnson is. That is a cowbell. Uh, that, and, and, and the fact that she gave such little information about Jack Johnson, I mean, there are whole documentaries and books and all kinds of things written uh, on Jack Johnson. President Trump is just pardoning Jack Johnson like he's talked to someone who has been dead for a long time and is still talked about like he's with us today. Uh, for him to just get kind of short shrift, and that's happened a few times where she's kind of mentioning the Loving case, where she's mentioning kind of large events, and they get very short detail. I kind of quite like, who is this book written for? What is the purpose uh, of this book if we're kind of being very superficial in what gets covered in some aspects? Uh, I just cowbell immediately I thought of in terms of the arc of what happened with Jack Johnson's, even the entertainers, uh, the, the, uh, the black people that are doing well. That's the section where Jack Johnson is mentioned along with Oprah Winfrey and Jay-Z. But even Oprah Winfrey, like the book is, in Oprah Winfrey's book club, and then she's mentioned in – anyway, uh, just getting on Oprah's book club almost guarantees that you're going to be a bestseller and she's mentioned in the book. Anyway, uh, she's not ignorant. There's kind of very little mentioned about these folks, even some overlap here. Michael Jordan, Jack Johnson, double cowbell. Um, let's see. Lots of Kentucky connections there, too, with Muhammad Ali. When she said, for centuries enslaved people, I don't even use the word enslaved anymore. I told people about that, make it plain. If we're a slave, call us slaves. Uh, for centuries enslaved people had been ordered to perform at the whim of the master, either to be mocked in the master's parlor games or for their balls. I will have to be honest, when she said that, I was thinking balls to she. I was thinking testicles, and I had to go back and double, like, oh, okay, 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 okay. Even though the sexual exploitation, you know, major component of racism, white supremacy. Uh, let's see. She says, the, main, the mainstream derision belies the serious history of arbitrary. There's that word again. I'm going to have to look. You have to give me a second. Just how many times the term arbitrary is in this text, but arbitrary abuse of African-Americans. Look at that alliteration there, all those A's. Arbitrary abuse of African-Americans under slavery when the degradation was entertainment for the dominant case. I feel like for a sentence right there, it would have been so much better entertainment for whites. Make it plain. That's why I feel like you're pussyfooting the language. You're doing that at a lot of key points because that could have been a really powerful uh, point. It should be. I emphasize. I think the person who wrote in made it plain. Menstruacy in the racist jokes. Why we spend so much time? Why do we have so many white guests? Oh yeah, got racist. I can't tell you any, but oh yeah, it's supposed to be enjoyed. Mr. Fuller says that enjoyment. They have made that their primary objective, not finances or anything else. Enjoying having fun, mistreating black people. Central to the system of racism, white supremacy. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand what's happening. Uh, anybody else's comments that they want to make sure they get in? Make sure. Is that correct? Anybody else who's seen like book clubs or if you know other black people that are reading this book, is your general sense that they, two thumbs up, this is great. Can, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. So there was one 
review of the book, which was not favorable, as a matter of fact, negative. It was on Black Agenda Report. Uh, it says, uh, it has a whole thing, but I want to read this, this, these, these two sentences or three sentences where it says, the book says nothing particularly new. It is intellectually lazy and socially, scientifically superficial because the theory doesn't work and explains very little, if anything, in the current crisis to use as antidote ad nauseum as evidence of an identity between the Indian caste system and the U.S. race classes. So that was, uh, that was just a little snippet of it, but, yeah, he, he kind of, like, trashes the book. Wow. Black Agenda Report, not feeling the book. <sighs> what to say? Those critiques sound very similar uh, to what I said, superficial, intellectually, intellectually lazy. Can I be heard? Thomas in New York, yes, sir. Um, I believe that this book will become a quiet reading <laughs> in the school system very soon. As soon as they get back to school, this will be um, – Right there with the hate you give, Gus, um, the quiet reading, more confusion. Um, it's also, when white people do this, I classify it as an act of white supremacy, um, but she's not white, so she's just confused. Um, to marginalize, and it also gives false um, impressions to the youth. Um, all of those people she named, they didn't get rich from being entertainers. Uh, they got rich for the businesses that they got into, um, Oprah, she's a production company. You know, forget about her show. She produces stuff. Uh, Jay-Z, the clothing line, the liquor sales, you know. Uh, any any of the blacks in entertainment, like Jordan Sneakers, Kanye Sneakers, um, they, they get rich from doing industrial stuff, not from the art they make. So I think that's a marginalization uh, of them. Even LeBron's into production companies and stuff. So it's what you're telling uh, the youth that, that they make all this money playing ball, no, you know, they they um, mastered other crafts and got into other fields. And I think that marginalizes them. I mean, my line, Gus, thank you. Important point, important point. Mostly, race soldiers make all the money from entertainment, uh, all the folks that she mentioned, absolutely. Uh, the black people that she, Jay-Z and Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jordan, absolutely, those folks are mega moguls in terms of uh, industry and having production companies for lots of things. Can I be heard? Retired firefighter? Yes, I'm, 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 with this book, I'm beginning to uh, think, figure out that uh, – Book writing uh, is more or less now is designed for readers to be entertained while they're reading, uh, designed to make uh, certain fashions of people to feel good as opposed to uh, being factual, being accurate, and putting the information down and whatever your feelings are is not essential. Uh, it's not a whole lot of accuracy in, in a historical standpoint. 
uh, some of these books we've actually read. And and that's that's where I I'm, I'm getting this this thought from. Uh, you can actually write a book now, and if it if it filters through on a, on an approval level with certain people, it'll end up being a quote unquote bestseller. And and literally, it is not accurate at all. Uh, very much like you would see with movies, you know, television programs. Uh, they're not based on uh, factual things or logical things. It's designed to make people feel good or laugh or whatever. I'm I'm seeing the same thing with uh, with with books, you know, and, and in terms of what books are becoming quote unquote bestsellers, and the writer. Uh, may may uh, get a uh, some sort of award for writing the book. You know that's that's what I'm that's what I'm beginning to see based on some of these books that we have been lately reading over the past couple of years. I would say, yeah, just a thought. Much obliged, retired firefighter. We will rest there. Uh, for this evening's book club, uh, we'll pick up next week, uh, Pillar 6, uh, and I'll check out, uh, I'll see what the Black Agenda Report has to say about Isabel Wilkerson, but I think he might be in the minority with us. I don't think that's uh, the bulk. I think this is going to be a required reading, as Thomas said, and Ray reviews, which again just shows, in my view, how widespread the confusion is about white supremacy racism. But... We will continue. She does even reference, since Harriet A. Washington's book was mentioned, both of them, Medical Apartheid and A Terrible Thing to Waste, she mentioned she has a lengthy footnote in the back because she talks about uh, some of the doctors on the plantation abusing black uh, people uh, about medical apartheid and gives rave reviews to that book. That's why I said she's not dumb. Anywho, we'll be here tomorrow for uh, for mentioned or neutralizing workplace racism, same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific, uh, and Saturday for the compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, much obliged to all the folks who emailed in. Uh, keep them coming. We have much more reading to go, so we'll see what constructive information or thoughts we get from the book. I will check on the biographies once we get off the air. Uh, sobriety would be best. That's in uh, The Half Has Never Been Told. Edward Baptist talks about how they would use alcohol to keep the slaves docile and confused so they wouldn't be running away and plotting to butcher whites on the plantation. <clears throat> we need our brain-computer working at a high level to decode these types of books and to work on solving the problem. In addition to being sober, I'm still with Let's Hunker Down, lots of hazards out there, armed whites, the Rona, if you have to go out, be alert. Uh, if it looks like someone is being loud and rowdy with you, we are not arguing. We're not saving face. We're not having any verbal verbal confrontations or anything. Get out of there. It is time to find a safe exit. Uh, we're just not taking any risks. It's been too many armed white people incidents. So that's something to keep in mind as well. If it looks like somebody is turning up a little bit and getting rowdy, this white person might be armed, female, male, child, whatever it is. Uh, if you are going out, as I said, you are buckled, 
you are sober. If you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, number one, we need to be paying attention to what's happening around us. Number two, we're trying to minimize contact with enforcement officers, badge or no, just doing the small things, trying to stay as safe as possible. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Your problem? You're a victim. Uh, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Uh.